0: Folks, last night was our biggest live event of the year, Backstage Live at the Ryman, where we dropped some absolutely seismic announcements. Daily Wire Plus is the new streaming service for our fast-growing library of shows, movies, and coming soon, animated and live-action kids' content. And if that wasn't enough, Daily Wire Plus has also signed a multi-year deal with a man who has outraged millions and inspired millions more, Jordan Peterson. His podcast and video content has amassed over half a billion downloads and views since 2016. Now, all of it will be hosted on Daily Wire Plus along with brand new awesome shows like Dragons, Monsters and Men, a four-part miniseries on men, masculinity and purpose. It's available to stream right now with much more in the pipeline. In Jordan Peterson's words, Daily Wire Plus is at the forefront of a huge shift in media technology. Partnering with a company that shares my own values for excellence and entrepreneurial vision is the natural next step for me. It is a monumental development and just goes to show that good things happen when you make your bed, and we are glad we made ours. We're also expanding our partnership with PragerU, bringing you more of the essential educational content they are famous for, with a new show launching in the fall with Dennis Prager. There's no doubt, this year we've been on a winning streak. The documentary and book that asked one simple question, what is a woman, has rocketed to the top of the charts fueling a debate that has raged across the country from living rooms to the halls of the Supreme Court. We put Hollywood back in its place by uncanceling Gina Carano and starring her in our new summer blockbuster, Terror on the Prairie. We launched Crane Company, a new sport podcast that went straight to number one on Apple Podcasts. And we even started a razor company so we can take your money instead of you giving it to the people who hate you. Here's the thing. You don't like that cartoons are trying to indoctrinate your kids. You don't like that government is trying to criminalize your speech. You don't like that a sold-out legacy media is lying to you or that the company you work for has gone full woke. So what can you do? Well, you can complain, or you can roll up your sleeves and start building the future you wanna see. That's what we are doing with Daily Wire Plus. And that's what you're doing when you support us in the fight. Join us today by going to dailywireplus.com. That's dailywireplus, dot com to become a member today. Believe me, we're just getting started.
1: Seven years ago today, Ben Shapiro signed his agreement with what is now Bent Key Ventures, joining Jeremy Boring and Caleb Robinson in founding conservative media company, The Daily Wire.
2: Now, seven years later, The Daily Wire is making some major announcements.
1: I'm Daily Wire editor-in-chief John Bickley with Georgia Howe. It's June 29th, and this is Morning Wire. Within months of launching in 2015, The Daily Wire was the fastest growing conservative news site in the nation, and The Ben Shapiro Show was the largest conservative podcast in the world.
2: Since 2015, Daily Wire has launched a number of new shows, podcasts, and original series, including the ensemble show, Daily Wire Backstage.
1: The tumultuous year of 2020 saw The Daily Wire take some massive steps forward, and make some bold promises.
2: Candace Owens was coming on board.
1: (laughs) The news site would hire a team of investigative journalists.
2: (laughs) And the company would be producing original feature films.
1: In July, 2021, The Daily Wire launched a new audio podcast, which quickly climbed the charts to become this top two, top 10 news show, Morning Wire. <laughs> also
2: in 2021, The Daily Wire took on the most powerful government on the planet, suing the Biden administration for attempting to force employers to force their employees to take a vaccine against their will.
1: On January 13th, 2022, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of The Daily Wire.
2: This year has been jam packed for The Daily Wire. It's released a string of feature films, announced its investment in kids' entertainment content, and launched a new sports podcast, Crane and Company.
1: And on June 1st, The Daily Wire released what would become the most watched documentary of the year. A documentary starring Matt Walsh that asked the pressing question of the time, what is a woman?
2: (laughs) And today, The Daily Wire is poised to make even more blockbuster announcements. Well,
1: Georgia, I think that about does it.
2: No, John, I think you missed some lines.
1: (laughs) There's like actual real life people out there. (laughs) All right, then let's give them what they want and let's get this show started. But first,
0: are you tired of buying your razors from companies that hate your values and cancel Michael Knowles? Jeremy's razors are 100% real and they are 100% fabulous. A razor fit for a god king. Jeremy's Razors will give you the best shape of your life and a clean conscience to boot knowing you aren't funding left-wing social causes with your precious men's grooming dollars. Jeremy's Razors will never tell you men are too toxic or that you should teach your daughters to shave their beards or that gender is a social construct. Stop giving your money to woke corporations that hate you. Give it to Jeremy instead. Join the over 70,000 Jeremy's Razors customers today at jeremysrazors.com. Jeremy's Razors, shut up and shave.
3: I hate this job. Welcome to Backstage Live. (laughs) We're so happy to be back at the historic Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, our new hometown. As Georgia and John said, today is actually, to the day, the seven-year anniversary of the forming of the company. It seems like a hell of a day to celebrate, and we're glad to be celebrating it with you guys. There's so many familiar faces out there in the audience today, our family, so many of our friends, even some of our most famous superfans who, unlike normal groupies, will never have sex with us. And instead, they try to convert all of those of us who aren't already no good papists to the Roman church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They denounce the lack of modesty in our feature films. And they get into theological arguments with us on Twitter. We picked the wrong line of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's like,
4: <laughs> absolutely failed. At least the, the women we're not sleeping with are actual women, so we have that in
0: Wait, isn't that guy, the guy from that documentary, like the biggest documentary of 2022, What is a Woman, right?
5: Yeah, I'm I'm still just embarrassed. I went all the way to Africa and I could have just went to the kitchen to talk to my wife, so that's (laughs) (laughs) humiliating. We have so much to talk to you guys about.
3: It's gonna be a different show than the last time that we were here because since it's our seven year anniversary, we feel like we need to have some special guests and we feel like we need to make some special announcements. And that's exactly what we're gonna do during the second half of the show. But to kick it off, of course we have to talk about the only story that matters in the world today. Roe v. Wade has been (laughs) aborted. V. Wade has been aborted, and it's the greatest political moment of my lifetime, and I think maybe the greatest political moment in, since the Second World War in this country. Unfortunately, according to the new rules of the culture in which we live, five cisgender white dudes aren't allowed to actually have a conversation about you know, a ruling that was made by nine cisgender white dudes back in the <laughs> 1970s. So to lend a little bit of credibility to our conversation, I thought we'd bring out someone who's nine months pregnant. weren't sure that Candice would be able to join us when we started selling tickets to the show because her baby is due right now. <laughs>
6: <laughs> it was, I'm so happy that I was able to make it. We were kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to be giving birth. Maybe I'll give birth on stage, but I'm definitely not missing it.
5: <laughs> it would be great TV.
6: Yeah, it would be really great TV. <laughs> All
5: right, can I just say you, you've almost moved me literally off the edge of the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Candice, I feel a little offended by that. <laughs> Roe is gone.
3: Unbelievable political moment. Ben, tell us what we're supposed to think. I mean, what we're supposed to think.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's so much to say. It's the greatest pro-life victory, obviously, in 50 years. Uh, And really, it's when the battle begins. Because the battle was just to get enough seats on the Supreme Court to actually overturn Roe so we could actually do all this. And for this, we have to thank President Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I had real doubts about President Trump when he was candidate Trump. The minute he selected Justice Gorsuch, on air, I put a MAGA hat on. And that's because what he did here by, by filling three seats on the Supreme Court this thing. I never thought in my, I really did not think in my lifetime we were going to see Roe versus Wade overturned. And now we've seen Roe versus Wade overturned. And that provides an opportunity not just for those of us who are new residents of red states and those of us who have been here for a while to actually save the lives of the unborn, but also to push forward an agenda in all the states that is going to save the lives of the preborn. So the battle really is taken up right now. I have one more thought on this, and then I want to you know, get everybody else in. But it's, it, I think that when, what's amazing is to watch the media propagandize on behalf of abortion and really demonstrate full-fledged their moral colors. Because for them, abortion is a sacrament. This is not about anything except for the idea that a woman cannot be a woman unless she has the capacity to kill her preborn child. Mm-hmm. And I do not think most Americans think that way. I think the left thinks that this is going to be a culture war moment that is going to cut in their favor. That Roe vs. Wade, people didn't want it overturned. People wanted the right to abortion across the board. And so they're pushing as hard as they can right now. And it's really ugly. Their arguments are really morally ugly. And I think most Americans can see that. And just like they have with every other issue in the culture, I think that they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction right now.
6: Right. Yep. I agree. <laughs> totally agree. You
0: know, this win has a real political
7: lesson for conservatives. I'm like you, Ben. I did not think that I would see Roe v. Wade overruled in my lifetime In just the past, what, two weeks, we've gotten a defense of the Second Amendment in New York. right. We've gotten a defense of Christian schools. We've gotten a defense of religious liberty in high schools. We've gotten the overruling of Roe versus Wade. This is not the moment to go weak. This is not the moment to squish. We've got to push forward. We're winning in Virginia. We're winning in Florida. We're winning all over this country. Now is the moment to push
3: full speed ahead. I mean, you hate to see the left, you know, all down and that's out. sad, isn't it? But even, <laughs> even more, you hate for Michael to make such a great point and for people to be <laughs> so happy.
5: Yeah, I, I, it, is, it is really clarifying, too, like you point out, Ben, because it's, uh, it's this line of distinction that's being drawn, mm. and you've got one side that's upset that more babies are going to live, and then you've got another side that's happy that they're going to live. And also, they're kind of revealing... Um, some things that they said that were total nonsense. Like, for example, we're hearing in the media all these lamentations about abortion clinics closing. Planned Parenthood clinics are closing all over the country. We're supposed to be upset about that. Of course, it's like, they, yeah, I couldn't be happier to see those people unemployed. But also, <laughs> but also they, I thought they said that abortion was only 3% of what Planned Parenthood does. So <laughs> why, why would Roe being overturned mean that doesn't make any sense? Well, here's one for you, Matt. I mean,
0: as, as the person who has most asked the question, what is a woman? Remember that time when trans men had babies, too? <laughs> and then literally yeah. the minute that Roe was overturned, it turned into, this is an attack on women. I thought, we were, I thought it was an attack on birthing people,
5: Yeah. Right? Exactly. on womb yeah. I Can I just say, Kamala Harris gave an interview the other day. Where she... Where she... She went on and on and on about how this was an attack on women. And I, it's honestly the most transphobic rant I've ever heard <laughs> in the White House. I was shocked by it. So, Candace,
3: I know you were still trying to decide whether or not to bring your child to term. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
6: <laughs> you know, it's, it is funny because it was surreal to hear the arguments that they were making mm. when you're actually getting prepared to give birth. Like, it became super surreal to hear them saying, it's not a life, it's not a life. And at that moment, I think what it really demonstrated was that in America, we're not debating abortion. We've never been debating abortion. When it first got started, we were debating eugenicism because Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, and you can look plenty into her history. There's no doubt that what they really set out to do at Planned Parenthood was to get rid of the undesirables in society. But now we've kind of fast-forwarded, and we're talking about child sacrifice. And it's really interesting because when I talk to my husband about this, it's very, because obviously he's English. Um, but when we, have, when we have these discussions, he's so shocked at American women, right? These women that are screaming outside um, of, of the Supreme Court house, and they're pregnant, and they say, still not a baby. I feel my child kicking every second of the day right it's bizarre to me to hear them say this is not a life and this is something that should be ripped out of your room up until nine months if you want that so there's something much more demonic much more satanic going on and the good news is that it does contribute to our side because the pendulum has swung so far left people are going listen i used to be pro-choice but i cannot support what you guys are talking about and so i think that's what we're seeing in america is that the left has gone so crazy that we're we're getting a, you know we're gaining a bunch of wins.
4: Yeah. To, to, to me, I, I have to say I, I know there are fights ahead and arguments ahead and I know there going to still be abortion in this country. There's a huge, essential difference between a country where evil things happen and a country where they tell you it's your right to do an evil thing. When you say, it's just like Dred Scott, when they tell you you have a right to do this evil thing, you dehumanize an entire segment of the, of the population, in this case, babies who already uh, don't have a voice. And I think back to that abortion video we made with Satan in it, where you turned in your Oscar-worthy uh, <laughs> performance as a baby screaming, of course I'm a human being, Look at me, you know? And I think you take that voice away from people when you say, not that there's going to be evil, but you have a right to do that evil. And I think this is a huge win, and our country is an actual better country right this minute than it was a week ago. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, there's something There's something really important, I think, to be noted about the dissent in the case I mean, there's a lot that's really interesting legally speaking because the yep. truth is that clarence thomas is right about everything as always clarence <laughs> thomas is the best justice he's always been the best justice <laughs> so the left has suggested it's a really extreme ruling by a right-wing court if it really were an extreme ruling by a right-wing court they would have read life of the unborn into the 14th amendment and they actually would have affirmatively said that they have a right to life yep. in the constitution right they didn't do that the dissent however is what i really focused in on because when I was growing up in the 90s, right, not all that long ago, the line from the Democrats was safe, legal, and rare. Okay. That was the line. It didn't make any logical sense that you'd want it to be safe, legal, and rare, because if the idea is that it's okay, then why would you want it to be rare? But the, the argument was sort of emotionally resonant. It's like, oh, well, we, we, we don't like abortion, but people have to have them, right? That actually had some, some level of, of baseline emotional resonance for a lot of Americans. Now Democrats have fallen into the shout your abortion movement, celebrate your abortion. It's a sacrament. It's something good. It's an active good to do abortion. And not just that, if you look at the actual opinion in Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade is written on the basis of a phantom right to privacy, right? They pick it up from Griswold, and then they move it forward through a bunch of other cases, and they get to Roe, and they say there's a right to privacy that is an emanation from a penumbra. But the argument is, this is a private thing that I'm doing with my own body. The argument of the dissent in Dobbs says that it's not about privacy. It says it's about women's equality. It says, women cannot achieve equality without killing their babies. And what they mean by this is that women cannot be as wildly sexually free and promiscuous and individualistic about their sex lives as they want to be if biology is allowed to take its course. And this is how they talk about pregnancy now, right? The way they talk about pregnancy is they treat it as an imposition. Pregnancy is an act of bad. They have doctors on TV to tell you that pregnancy is less safe than abortion, which is an argument for sterilization. I mean, that, that really is what it is. They make an argument. They'll talk about how... You know, pregnancy is is some sort of, you're forcing a woman to bear a child. Forcing a woman, no, that's called biology that's forcing a woman to bear a child. Nobody's forcing you to do that. That is the natural superpower of a woman. And what they are saying is that the only way that women can be equal to men is you take away their superpower and you turn them into physically weaker men, and suddenly this will be the, the, the best way for a woman to live. That is such a mistake for them. Women don't feel this way. Men don't feel this way. No society can be built on this. And if this is the way the left wants to go, the language of the dissent, they're going to lose from here till the end of time. And Do I just want
6: to, yeah. I want to add to that because I used to be pro choice. I used to be pro-choice because I think that's the natural product of having a department of education, education, right? You come up through the education system, they don't talk to you about adoption as an option. They just say, basically, you can have sex as much as you want. If you get pregnant, don't worry, you can get an abortion, it's a clump of cells. And what I was talking about just this week on my show was that my first... Introduction to abortion is actually with f- people in my cousin who became pregnant. Like, people in my family, pardon, two cousins who became pregnant. Both of them were peer pressured to get abortions. Mm-hmm. This, this, this whole depiction in the media, like women are marching into these clinics and they're super happy and it's my body and my choice. It's a lie. I know six women that have gotten abortions. Each one of them were pressured, whether it was by family members, whether it was from boyfriends. I know one where the man became literally domestically violent and said, "You are going to abort this child. I'm not ready to have a kid." This is the conversation that America is not having. The majority of women are getting abortions under duress. So far be it from, I just want to live my life and be free. And even the women that don't do it under duress, they come out the other side, and they're not the same. They have an extreme amount of regret, and we're never having those conversations. The arguments are so dishonest in the media.
3: I I love the idea. I love the idea that men are trying to force women not to make sex
4: more convenient.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's an absolute...
4: It is what it is, though. It is neutralizing... Uh, the, the natural course of sex so that men can be more free. And right. they tell women that, oh, now you will be as free as men. But that's, it's such a lie. Because men
3: won the sexual revolution.
4: That's right. That is absolutely right. And when you talk to young women today, they are so miserable. They are told they're going to be freer, stronger, better because they can have promiscuous sex. And all of them are, so many of them are depressed. And you're not allowed to talk about it. You know, there are psychologists who've written books under uh, no name or fake names because they were afraid they would be fired if they said all the women are depressed. Why could this possibly be? All this wonderful feminism, the women are depressed. This is why. I mean, they have taken away from them exactly who they are and now they're telling us, as Matt has documented, they're telling us that they are nobody, they're nothing.
7: Did you see this article in Business Insider? Yes. So in Business Insider was reporting, this said, terrible, terrible news as a result of the Dobbs decision, Zoomers are having less promiscuous sex. <laughs> this is really bad. They're thinking about sex more. They're deciding if they like the person they're having sex with. There may be being a little reticent. This horrible, horrible news. You, you are seeing a downstream cultural effect yeah. of this political judicial What about the sex decision. strike,
2: the sex guys? What about a the sex strike?
5: And this,
7: you know, it's, it's really amazing because the left talked about the Me Too movement for how many years? Time's up. They talked about a rape culture, not incidents of rape, but a rape culture that is pervasive. All of that is because of the sexual revolution and a culture that encourages promiscuous sex. Where those lines are blurred, blurred lines, you're going to have those situations where people don't know where the boundaries are. It redounded entirely to the benefit of dirtbag men, it harmed lots and lots of women, and it killed a (laughs) bunch of babies, and now that's over, and that's a big win for America. Can I just say...
5: First of all, some of these women who say they're going on sex strikes, I look at them and I think. You're already
6: on one. That's like, you were already on it, one. Yeah.
5: That's like me saying I'm boycotting a vegan restaurant. You know, it's uh, <laughs> kind of a moot point. But I, I, Candace raises a really good point. Every once in a while she does that. Uh, <laughs> we, we you say we, we call it the pro choice movement, but actually, the abortion industry, they trade on removing choice from women. It, when, when a woman goes into the abortion clinic, the message they're told is not that, oh, you've got all these wonderful choices. It's that, it's that you have no choice. Your life is over if you, don't, if you don't kill this baby, which is also why, as part of the backlash against the overturning of Roe, there's this really sinister move happening right now, and it's happening among the pro-abortion militants and also the Democrats. I repeat myself, obviously, but where they are, they're, they're going after the, the, pregnancy, the crisis yeah. pregnancy center, the pregnancy right. resource yeah. centers. These are the people who give choices. Exactly. The, these are, these are uh, just establishments that are set up to help pregnant women. That's all. They give, you, they give you diapers. They give you counseling. They give you what you need. And the Democrats are saying, let's shut all them down. Because if a woman is pregnant, they, we want her to be desperate and afraid because it's, it's through fear that she goes to get the abortion. The is abortion clinic right? feeds off of fear.
3: That's right. This is why I love, on one hand, they say, conservative Christians don't care anything about a baby once it's born. And then they also say, shut down all the conservative Christian charities that take care of babies that are born.
0: This is is the thing. They exist in an extraordinary echo chamber. They've been in it so long, and it's been created by Roe, because Roe has given them the ability to say whatever they want without any sort of actual political consequence. And now Roe is gone, and people are going to start taking their arguments a lot more seriously. And because they're in this bizarre echo chamber, they make arguments that they don't even seem to hear. There's a Washington Post article a couple weeks ago, right after the overturning of Roe, or a week ago, and it was about this woman who was in Texas, and she had had twins. And the entire article was about how, because Texas had a law that was passed last year that essentially banned abortion, that because of this, she had had the babies. And the entire article was supposed to be lamenting that she had had the babies. But what it posited was the the opening picture is a picture of her with these two beautiful twins. And then in the article, it says things like, well, she thought a lot about if she hadn't had these babies, she could have gone to Hawaii and swam with the dolphins. (laughs) There's no way to read that article and not realize that this is a pro-life article. This is saying that the choices in your life are bear and raise two beautiful human beings, two human souls that you have brought to this planet, and that you are going to allow to live an amazing life, or maybe you can see your feet in the ocean off the coast of
7: Hawaii. <laughs> and and did that, you that's see what she said they, at the end? What the girl said at the end yeah, of that article? Yeah, she that. said, my life would be unimaginable without these babies. I love these babies right. so much. I'm so happy I and, kept my baby. And, and that's hitting my... at
6: the culture of narcissism that we have. That's the thing about the culture of narcissism that we have when we hear this with Michelle Williams when she accepts the statue and says, I would have never won this award if I had not gotten my abortion. I was reading a book, um, Ronnie Stark's How the West Was Won, How the West Won. Um, And in it, he sort of depicts this temple that was being raised, Native Americans, far from the Pocahontas depictions. They were actually, you know, they were cannibals and Aztec warriors is what he was talking about, raising this temple. And they sacrificed children and adults every time they would build these temples. And he talked about this one temple that they raised where they sacrificed 26,000 lives. Unimaginable today, right? And we're looking at this going, oh, my gosh, how barbaric, how archaic. This could never happen today. Look at American society. We're sacrificing 890,000 babies per year. Why? For convenience, for narcissism, because I'm not ready, because I I think I could go further in my career if I don't have this child. That's really sick.
3: It's for the very same reason that the Aztecs did it. It's a paganism that posits, if I sacrifice my baby, I will have more material wealth.
6: That's exactly correct. That's the exact reason they did it. That's exactly
4: correct. My favorite of these these arguments that they make now that they don't hear because they've been in this bubble so long Hmm. is the one I see on Twitter all the time which is if women have to have their babies, then men should be forced to stay with them and take care of them. You think like <laughs> your, yeah. your terms are acceptable, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, did,
7: you know, I think this was probably the biggest takeaway from this whole term in the Supreme Court is that I think conservatives generally understand where the libs are coming from. Yep. We make fun of them, but I think we basically got what they want. Mm-hmm. They have no idea no, what we believe. Yeah. When they said that line, there was another one. They said, well, yeah, we'll see if you like the Second Amendment When black men get guns, (laughs) black rifles, black guns—they're all good in my book, baby. Let's bring them all on. It's great. We we totally all all of these. Their entire
0: accounts devoted to just saying this, right? They they don't understand our opinion so much that literally every day they will bring out a new opinion, like, well, if the right truly believes X, and they have to believe Y, I'll be like, right, that's been our agenda (laughs) the entire time. Like they they, after the after that decision came down with uh, Coach Joseph Kennedy, who's now allowed to pray on fifty-yard line, right? That's right. So the columnist was Jahad Ali, who writes for the New York Times sometimes. And he, he is, like, the guy who does this every— like, literally every single day he does this. He, he was like, well, you know, if you allow Coach Kennedy to pray in school, you know a Jew might pray in school. <laughs> and everybody's like, what? <laughs> and? Like, this is not, like Okay. <laughs> On the abortion one, their favorite one is, well, you know, if you, if you are going to say that life begins in conception, then men should actually start paying for the babies from the point of conception. You should have paternity from the point of conception. And we're like— Yes, this is called marriage, right? You were supposed to be paying before the baby was even created. Well, that,
6: that's what I thought when they said sex strike. I was like, you mean abstinence? Right.
0: chastity <laughs> yeah. yes. is good.
6: That could be a thing. Super,
3: <laughs> Super fan Margot just fainted. Yeah. The mention of
7: the virtue of chastity. Chastity, no, you know, you you really saw it in the Maine case. The the ma- there was this ruling in Maine that you could take your public school funding for rural students and use it at Christian religious schools, and then the libs come out and they say, well. Let's see what happens when a Muslim, which I don't know that there are Muslims in Maine, but let's say that there are. They say, <laughs> when a Muslim in Maine uses that money for their own religious school. And I sort of thought, you know, if the options right now were woke public school or madrasa, I am sending my kid to a madrasa. <laughs> he will get a much more normal education and they won't trans my kid. Yeah, I mean, I...
5: <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I don't know how I would feel actually about funding a uh, school for the one Muslim in Maine. <laughs> it feels, <laughs> feels a little bit like uh, not a good use of funds. But, but I, I think for the left, you know, they, they see everything through this intersectional lens. They see everything through the lens of race and ethnicity. They can't decide how they feel about anything at all, about any uh, event that occurred until they know well, what's the ethnicity of the person? What's the religion? How much did they weigh? How, how do they identify? And they just can't conceive of the fact that we really don't look at it that way. Yeah. We just simply don't. We actually have these, thing, these things called principles, and we try to, <laughs> we try to abide by them. Oh, man, it we really it leads them to such unbelievable box
0: canyons. My favorite is on abortion, where you'll see them say things. Like Ayanna Pressley said this today, the Democratic congresswoman from, from Massachusetts. She said today, you know, the real problem with banning abortion is it's going to disproportionately harm LGBTQ people. And I thought to myself, I'm going to need a chart on this one. LAUGHTER <laughs> I may may not be an expert. I mean, I have three kids of my own, but I may not be an expert. I'm fairly certain that this is not primarily going to target gay men and lesbian women. (laughs)
6: Amy Schumer, same thing. She came out and gave a statement about this is exactly what the slaveholders wanted. And I was like, I would like a further explanation <laughs> as to what you are talking about when you make that statement, because there was, there was no abortion happening when we had slaves. What are they saying?
5: And on the, the slave thing, too, this is why when, when pro boards talk, it's always opposite day. Everything they say, it's like the opposite of the truth. And on the slave thing, this is what they, they're trying to compare pro-lifers with slaveholders, but if you look back through history, you find, unfortunately, the tragic tale of human history is that there are always groups of people throughout history pointing to other groups of people and saying those people aren't people. And so who, we know who did that back in the, in the 19th century in this country, it's slave, slaveholders. Who's doing that now? Of course, it's pro-abortion people pointing to babies in the womb and saying... That, well, that's not really a person. And not I just that, said, on the, racial, on the racial
0: front, my favorite part of this is where they say, well, you know, it's racist. What you're doing is racist because it can disproportionately harm black and Latina women <laughs> and, and all this. And it's like, so we're so racist, we want more black babies?
6: Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's your, the, your idea is that we're so racist, we want there to be fewer black well, abortions because they and expect... more black babies. That's how racist we are.
6: Yeah, but they, the reason they do it, and this is why Amy Schumer is so frustrating, is because what they do is they expect black Americans to be the least educated, and they expect them, hey, be angry, go out and fight our battles. That's all it means. When someone privileged like Amy Schumer says, it's exactly what the slaveholders wanted, what she's doing is signaling to black Americans to go riot, go out and loot and protest so that... Yeah her and her privileged Democrat friends can have what they want, which is the ability to abort children up to nine months in the womb.
3: Well, this is an important point.
6: Yeah, let me get my applause. Yeah. Nine months pregnant.
3: <laughs> the racism of the left always comes out in these moments. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually want there to be fewer black children. That's what Planned Parenthood was probably about from the very beginning. And if you read the things that they say about Clarence Thomas, the things things that white liberals feel privileged to be able to say about a black man when he happens to disagree with them
0: is the great evidence of the lie of, you know, conservative racism. Did you see what Hillary said about Clarence Thomas? So Hillary came out and she said, you know, I went to law school with Clarence Thomas, and he is resentful and filled with grievance, and it's like... Do you... Is there, like, a mirror in a (laughs) 300-mile vicinity? Hot? Like, anywhere. A reflective surface of any kind. Water, glass, and it's night. Like, something that will reflect back at you what you are saying right now. But it's amazing that Hillary Clinton gets to say, basically, angry black man as much as she wants, and that's totally fine.
4: And that was was after he became a sexually charged black man. They've been doing this to him. And they actually have a theory now. Their theory is that a black person becomes white by disagreeing with them. They actually say this. Essentially, he has adopted white values right. and he's therefore white. And you know
7: why, why they're it. especially angry, though, that we're winning on abortion right now? The, the dirty little secret is no one actually cares about abortion. We care about abortion. We pro-lifers really care. The radical, crazy, shrieking, you know, crazy hair color ladies, they care about abortion. The vast majority of Americans do not care at all. Something like 15% of Americans consider abortion to be the top issue. And you figure 7.5% are pro-life, 7.5% are pro-abortion. And so when you win... When you get a victory, like Dobbs, like the pro-life law in Mississippi, like the pro-life laws around the country, now the onus is on the left, on the pro-abortion side, to gin up the enthusiasm. It's not going to happen. It's not going to help them in the midterms in November. No, no. They're going to lose, oh. and that's that.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's one of the really important points to make here, and this is, uh, we know... Or the left, one thing they're very good at is defining the terms of debate and giving us all terms that we're supposed to use. And so this term of reproductive, like it's a, it's a matter of reproductive rights. It's so absurd because, yeah. because, you know, when we're talking about abortion, this is an act of violence being committed against a life that has already been produced. The reproductive act, okay, is you know, that's the sexual act, and then reproduction is conception. So that's why when, you're, when, you're a, when a, a woman is giving birth in the hospital and she's in the middle of getting birth, you never hear a doctor shout, oh, she's reproducing. It's like that, is, <laughs> that. Hopefully the reproduction didn't happen in the hospital. That'd be very strange. So this is... <laughs> it, it's, it's, abortion is not a reproductive decision, okay, because the baby already exists. Abortion is, in fact, more of a parenting decision. It's, it's a decision of, am I going to care for my child or kill him. That's actually the decision being made. And when you, when you lay it out that way, I think it kind of puts a good uh, different it's, face on it. It
4: really is all about whether the child is a human being. And even in the dissent, the Kagan dissent, they talk about the competition of rights, the mother's rights versus the baby's rights. Why, do they, why does a baby have rights? Why does an unborn baby have rights if it's not a human being? I mean, <laughs> even, right. even their dissent kind of proved our point.
3: That's right. Yeah. I actually want to talk about that. What's going to happen next? I mean, we, we, obviously it's a great moment, it's a great thing that's happened, but there are a lot of unintended consequences whenever there's a seismic shift in policy. Overturning Roe, for example, one thing that Roe, obviously we know that Roe made uh, abortion federally protected, but it also limited certain aspects of abortion. Now that changed a little bit over the years with Casey, which was also overturned. But one of the things that's going, that we know is going to happen is that while there are going to be far, far fewer abortions in Tennessee, there are going to be far, far more abortions in California. But that's not the extent of it. There are going to be far, far more brutal abortions in California because essentially all the constraints that have been placed on abortion at the federal level are are also removed. You're going to wind up having like abortion until your 14th birthday in blue states. This is also going to make abortion now a legislative issue, which it hasn't been in my lifetime, which means that now it's, it's a matter of not just like something we talk about every four years during presidential cycles but something you're gonna be thinking about during state representative elections, during federal representative elections. What, what can come of this other than, I mean, we're obviously we're celebrating, it's a great day for mm. the country, but what are the things that can actually come well, of this? Well, I think Corporate I policies. Think there are two things,
4: I think there are two, two yeah. things that could come of it. One is what I'm hoping for and what I actually foresee, which is moral federalism, which means that we are going to mm. form communities in our states, we're gonna become a patchwork of states, which is what we were meant to be, Madison knew that only a Patrick of states could survive as a republic, and a gigantic republic would descend into authoritarianism. That's what the left is trying to get. That's why they don't want the guns with which we defend our states' rights. So that's the good version of it. The good version of it is we all move into the states we want to live in. Uh, We become experiments in democracy, and the ones that succeed win. The bad version is we all start killing one another, and we have a civil war. I
5: actually Uh, don't don't agree... I actually don't, I don't fully agree with that because I, I, this is what I hear from conservatives saying that, well, this is a state's rights issue and the best thing is that we leave it to the states. And uh, I, I think that obviously Roe was decided correctly. So for the time being, that means you send it back to the states. But I don't believe, in fact, that California has the right to kill babies. I, I, I don't oh, yeah. think that that's a right that exists. I don't think that people have... Um, I don't think that that, that right... Exists. So what I would like to see is uh, that, in fact, this goes back to being a federal issue and that we go to those states and we, we say you're not allowed to kill babies, and there are a diff- few different ways to do that. One would be through a personhood amendment, which, uh, yes. we, which we shouldn't need, but we do to just affirm it's a constitu- yep. you have a constitutional right to life. I think that has to be, yep. personhood amendment needs to be the next step. And.
6: Every win that conservatives are experiencing right now will be short-lived if we don't take back over the education system, because that's how we got here in the first place. And speaking to that point, everybody, I think everybody knows by now, but my, my idol is obviously Thomas Sowell. I love him. And he wrote a book called Inside the the American Education System, and he spells out, you know, Planned Parenthood's push in the 70s. There was this lie, this propaganda that was created that teenagers were all just having sex, when in fact they weren't. The majority of teenagers in America were graduating with their virginity, and then Planned Parenthood got into the classroom, and they started saying, okay, actually, your parents know what they're talking about. This is a different generation. Sex is okay, and that's how we've arrived at where we are today, because we've allowed these institutions to get into our classroom and to poison the minds of our youth. That's how you end up with these shrieking women, you know, that really can have, you know, the ability, if you saw that photo, of a woman that was eight months pregnant, saying, you know, this is not, still not a baby, still not a life. That's scary stuff, and I really do believe that the shit that has to happen, I'm always kind of uh, screaming at parents to get involved as you, as much as you can on a local level, and understand that that's where the real battles are taking place. So,
0: I actually think that the, the pro-life movement has actually a very serious upper hand here. And I think the reason we have an upper hand is because for 50 years, the Democrats didn't have to come up with any arguments to support why they love abortion so much. Whereas people on the right, we actually had to make the arguments to individual women as to why abortion is, is wrong and bad. Right? This is why the number of abortions year on year has declined in the United States, actually, over the course of the last couple of decades, despite the absolute increase in population, absolute incre- decrease in abortion, absolute increase in population. That's because the pro-life movement has done an amazing job of informing more and more women that this is the case. So that means the groundwork is being set, particularly in the purple states, which we're going to have to move the deadlines early and earlier on a state level in terms of protecting human life. But it means that the left is really wrong-footed here. Matt, you're obviously right down on a legal level. I think that the Supreme Court makes pretty clear in its opinion, and particularly in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, that they are not going to allow widespread federal congressional legislation purely. I don't think that if Republicans earn a majority in Congress and in the Senate and even have the presidency and then pass a law, say, barring abortion at 10 weeks, that the Supreme Court will uphold that. I think they're going to have real trouble doing that under the inherent power that Congress is given under the Constitution of the United States. What it does mean is that if we're going to win this thing long term, it's going to be a gradual washing of pro-life sentiments across the land, beginning in the red states, moving across the purple states, and then finally hitting the blue states. And for the blue states that won't comply, by that point, there will be enough states to back a constitutional amendment you'll actually be able to win. That's the way it's supposed to work. Absolutely right.
7: It, It gets to this question. It's a virtue that conservatives are generally better at, but we sometimes forget. Prudence. You need to be prudent with the way you go about this. To your point, Matt, it, it Of course it's the case. No one has a right to commit murder. It's wrong to commit murder, not just because I think so, but just because it is objectively. And the law, understood in that way, is not something that I invent out of my unfettered reason. It's actually something I perceive from objective reality, and then we apply it throughout our country. So that's absolutely right. To your point, Ben, the opinions are, especially Kavanaugh, are very, very clear. We're not touching this. We don't want to deal with it. We're not going to even go so far is Clarence Thomas, whose concurrence was absolutely awesome, He's but he was bad. the only guy that signed on to it. So they're, they're not going to do that. There is this question of prudence. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And I, I bet you, I, I'm just putting on my Noel Stradamus, I'm reading the future, kind of <laughs> predicting things, you know. And I would, I would imagine that Justice Alito... 100% agrees with what Thomas wrote in his concurrence. I suspect there was a prudential judgment. We need to protect this decision now. Get rid of Roe, get rid of Casey, prudentially send it back to the states, and then fight that battle. This isn't the end of the pro-life movement. Frankly, this is the beginning of a whole new stage but of this the is, pro-life but movement. But this,
4: this, this is the way the country is actually supposed to work. I mean, this is why Kavanaugh repeatedly throughout his, throughout his uh, concurrence, concurrence uh, said there's 26 states we are supporting this decision. I'm an English major, but I think that's a majority of, of the states in the country. <laughs> and and, and I, I think that that's the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to install the kind of culture, the kind of uh, law that we want in our states, and then that wins if it works. And, the, I, this, and I think this will win. There's no this, I mean,
0: this is the other point on the Democrats' overreach here. It's not just Democrats are overreaching in terms of wanting to legalize abortion until after you're actually dead of old age and revive you and then abort you again. They, what... what <laughs> What Democrats are overreaching on is also a systemic governmental issue, right? They're talking about the idea that this is anti-democratic for the Supreme Court <laughs> yeah. to take itself out of the issue and refer it back to legislature,
3: Yeah, which Letting is the definition democracy. of democracy, democracy right? Work. We're going
0: to let people vote on this issue. My God, that's anti-democratic. We can't allow that sort of thing. And so they're calling for packing the court. They're calling for killing the filibuster. They're calling for getting rid of the Senate in some cases. Right? These are the things that AOC, the estimable genius wunderkind is saying. Stephen Colbert wants her to run for president. I fully agree with Stephen Colbert. I also want her to run for president. <laughs> That's an endorsement. She You're endorsing. Her ass kicked so bad, it would be yeah. amazing to watch. But their overreach—the the overreach is so extreme on every level, and they can't hold themselves in. I, I really think that the media have done the Democrats and the, and the left a massive disfavor because they've never been exposed to the toxicity of another argument. They, like, it it's just it doesn't exist for them. And most of us, and when I say most of us, I don't mean most conservatives, I mean most Americans do not live in their little That's stupid right. bubble in which they all repeat their dumb euphemisms to one another.
5: Yeah, I, I agree, by the way. I would love to say I run for president, and um, I already raised a lot of money for her grandmother. <laughs> <you know. laughs> i thinking, baby... Abuela. Probably time to fund her campaign. I don't know. Um, <laughs> one, one thing we know... That might be a bridge too far to fund AOC's presidential campaign. I don't know. It's a pretty good joke. Yeah, it would be a good (laughs) joke. Um, One thing we know, because now, now, like AOC and all the rest of Democrats are saying, well, the Supreme Court's broken. It's broken. So what we know about the left is that an institution being broken means it has stopped bowing to their demands at every like the minute it stops obeying their whims, the institution is broken. That's what it means. Yeah. Basically. You
6: know, I, I would be the only one to push back and say I wouldn't want AOC to run for president because we sit here and we mock this, but at the end of the day, we are facing an educational crisis in this country. The majority mm-hmm. of people are driven by their emotions. That's why their arguments that are so foolish work, right? They say things that make entirely no sense and people think it's true. They get out there and they say, this means women are going to be having back alley abortions and tens of thousands of women were dying of back. None of this is true, yeah, but no, they don't yeah. know any better because our educational system has been rinsed of civics 101. We're talking about a convention of states. We're talking about Article 5. Go speak to your average person that's in, that's in high school or middle school about any of these things, and they don't know anything beyond CRT and LBGTQ agenda, which is why I continually come back to that fight for the education system because one day AOC will be able to run... And people will be stupid enough, right, yeah. to go, oh well, she's saying everything can be free. Yeah,
4: I agree with you, Candace. I, she, I think she's the most dangerous politician in the country. And even though the idea of her running for president is funny, it's funny that makes me choke. You know, because <laughs> I, I think, I think, you know, there's, I could just see God punishing us by letting her win. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, but and and she is she is the poster child for ignorance. I have never, no, you know, she's not a stupid woman. She's not a stupid woman, but she no, is no, the no. picture next to no, no, ig- no, ignoramus stupid. in mm. the dictionary. Yeah.
8: Yeah. You
7: know, forget, I mean, you, you mentioned the, you, the average student that you, doesn't know anything. The average host of The View knows less about <laughs> American civics. Yeah. And I was yeah, watching, I don't true. know if you saw this clip, I was watching the great philosopher Whoopi Goldberg the other day, <laughs> and, and Dr. Whoopi said that Clarence Thomas needs to watch out in his, in his concurrences because they, they are going to go after him and his marriage and make him a quarter of a person again. <laughs> I I scratched my head for a little. I said, first of all, who is they? Thomas is the Thomas is the one who knocks. Thomas is not he is the they that but that's beside the point. Then I said the the one quarter, well you're referring to the I guess the three-fifths compromise, but actually it was the slave states that wanted the black people to be counted as a full person, and it was the free states that didn't want them to be counted for purposes of representation. She doesn't know any of this. A country in which the elites, a country in which the people who set the public conversation. Whoopi Goldberg's on network television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A-, a country with that degree of ignorance among the elites cannot govern itself for very long. And This is why the left goes after civics. That's you know, why we got to fix it. Is, how
0: is, how she is a great public intellectual. I mean, she is a person <laughs> who, who literally said that everyone is racist except for Hitler. Yeah. That's an actual <laughs> yeah. thing that she said. Right? She said the Holocaust was not racist because Jews were white but you are racist if you're Clarence Thomas and you voted to strike down Roe vs. Wade. So does, she is, that, I mean, with that kind of intellect, I, I can't follow her. I mean, frankly, <laughs> it's too complex for me.
4: How, how does a show hosted by Sonny, Whoopi, and Joy produce so much misery? Yeah.
5: <laughs> there. Are these... To, to a point Ben made earlier, I mean, these people, you find on every issue, they, they exist in this bubble, and they've never had their views challenged at all. They've, they've never encountered anyone, really, who's willing to be skeptical about their views. That makes them weak. That makes them beatable. And that's something that I discovered while filming my uh, Smash documentary, What is a Woman? So, <laughs> <laughs> go to whatisawoman.com and stream it.
0: I've got to say, Matt... Yeah. As a professional in transitioning from content into an ad, yeah. that, was, that was just, that was beautiful. I bow to That's, you, my friend. That was, <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> Thank you.
3: When I was in high school, I had on my voicemail, I would always say, this is Jeremy Boring, uh, actor, director, and shameless self-promoter. I had nothing on you. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I do want to say, uh, what is a woman? Obviously, we're so thrilled the most-watched documentary, I think the most important documentary uh, of 2023, 2022 and 2023. <laughs> 2024. 2025. 2025. Uh, we don't talk enough about how important it is, how what you revealed there, as hilarious as it is, is also terrifying, uh, and how you actually asked a question that you are essentially not allowed to ask uh, in polite society because the left has determined that there is absolutely no answer, and... One thing that I think a, a lot of the people here would probably like to hear is just your journey as you went through that. How how that came to be from both from the idea uh, and then also how you were able to see it through. And what I'm the most interested in is how what kind of ice cold blood runs through your veins <laughs> that allows you to sit in those interviews for five
0: uh, minutes. I'll, 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 can Ooh, you also so answer face. like how raw kidney goat tastes? <laughs> how raw is <laughs>
5: oh. First of all, I actually wasn't trying to derail the whole conversation to talk about me, but I'm happy to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. First of all, raw uh, the kidney of a goat, it's, it's surprisingly mild, and the only problem with it is just, is just the knowledge that it's raw kidney. And if you can get over that knowledge, it's actually not so bad. Um, as for the rest of it, you know, this was... Something that occurred to me uh, years ago, that the, the entire gender ideology house of cards comes collapsing down um, under the weight of one simple question, which is, what is a woman? And the only thing that I, that I didn't really realize, and that kind of surprised me, well, a few things surprised me filming it, it, the, the documentary. One of them was just that, actually, these people can't answer any question at all. It's not just, <laughs> what is a woman? I, I, you know we, we had all this planned out before we sat down with the interviews. We went over the questions, and we had them kind of layered like we're going to ask this question and kind of build until we get to the really hard ones, like what is a woman? (laughs) And and so I thought that things would stay pretty cordial until we got to the really hard questions. And what I found is that the moment I asked one question that was actually a question and not just a a, a setup for them to launch into a spiel, you know, everything fell apart. They became very defensive and evasive and, um, well, there was that one professor who became very
7: offended when you right. used the word truth. Yeah. So why are you, why are you
5: asking? The, that the, the great, that's, a good, that's a good impression. You know, <laughs> the great thing about that uh, interview is that um, everything started to fall sideways when I asked him the difference between sex and gender, and that's when things got to started to get a little hostile. You mean his area of expertise. Right, his area of expertise. And also also that's a question that we emailed him ahead of time and he knew we were going to ask it and then when I asked it he said, "Why are you asking me that question?" What's going on? It's
3: pretty remarkable. Unbelievable. I love it because in many ways the documentary is the culmination of the work we've been doing at the Daily Wire for the last 7 years. Ben mentioned, as we were walking down, down from the backstage to get, to get ready to take our places tonight, he said, you know, the production value of the things that we're doing has, con- has come up so much from the days when we were sitting in the converted garage pool house in my backyard shooting the Andrew Clavin show. <laughs> <laughs> we barely had budget enough to, we could barely afford the black sheets that we hung over the windows, you know. <laughs> and now we're producing feature documentaries, we're producing feature films, we're, we're actually competing in culture. We're just beginning to compete in culture, right? We're, not, we're hardly Disney. Uh, they have a 100-year head start on us and about uh, several hundred billion dollars, but, uh, but we're finally making inroads into the culture, and that's a space that conservatives just have not occupied at all in living memory.
5: Yeah, I,
3: uh...
5: yeah, I did. One other thing about that is I, I, I think the thing that I like about the film the most is that it, it, works, as, uh, it works as entertainment. Um, it's just, it's a film, you know, it's an actual movie while also dealing with a really important subject. And for that, all the, none of the credit for that goes to me because the people behind the camera, Justin Folk, our director, uh, Dallas, the producer who worked on it, Jeremy also... Um, it, that, that's all their work, making it into a piece of entertainment. And they had to pull me back many times filming it because I kept, after we did the first interview and I had to sit there listening to these maniacs just <laughs> talk to me and I couldn't <laughs> yell at them and I kept wanting to say, no, guys, let's do this differently. I want to just go in there and scream at them. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's make that the, uh, the film. And uh, so I had to have actual filmmakers tell me that that doesn't make a good movie and that's not the best approach to this. So I think think we ended up with the right approach. But you know what? You know what's one of the amazing things about the documentary? That it really goes to sort of a broader
0: cultural point. What the documentary is, is you being extraordinarily polite and asking a very simple question. And the thing that the left cannot abide is conservatives being very polite and asking very simple questions. <laughs> yeah. you know? They can't abide. It. A good point. Because what they want to do is portray us all as raging, angry, <clears throat> crazy people who simply want to cram down our biblical views on everybody else. And what we're beginning to see is people just saying very simple things very calmly and the left losing their mind. Candace, and it's having an impact, not just in terms of like the stuff that we produce, yeah. but also in terms of the failures of the kind of stuff they're producing. Candace so standing thinking,
3: outside Patrice Kalor's house and just saying... Is anybody home? <laughs> right. I mean, is an act, is an act of violence.
6: I can I can do it live if you wanna see. Hello? Hello, yes, is, is anybody home? <laughs> she was She, was yeah. me.
7: But she brought her baby and the baby's attacking you too. It's
6: <laughs> like what? It was truly bizarre, O land. I, I actually could not have been nicer. I couldn't have done it. I could not have been more polite. That was the most polite Candace Owens has ever been in her entire life. Right there,
0: outside of her house. (laughs) But it's it's this attitude that I think people have finally started to say, you know what, me saying what I believe is moral is not impolite. So there's been this this kind of generalized attitude in the conservative movement, as long as I've been alive and, and well before it, suggesting that to say what you think on a moral level and to say it with confidence is somehow some sort of imposition on somebody else. It's an act of violence, it's something cruel, and if somebody gets offended, it's probably because you did something that was worthy of offending them. And when people start to get up on their hind legs and say, you know what, just no. The answer is just no. Then that doesn't just have an impact in terms of the content we're putting out, it also means that when the left pushes their content, it fails. So the key example of this from the past month is the failure of Lightyear. Disney puts out a film. After Chris Rufo, who does wonderful work over at the Manhattan Institute, after he reveals the undercover video from an all-hands Disney meeting in which they have executives talking about a not-at-all-secret gay agenda, Disney decides they're going to put a, a lesbian kiss in a film that is designed for small children. And all people who are conservative said is, you might want to consider whether you want your kids to see this. That's, I, I tweeted that. The left went insane. You're apparently not even supposed to consider whether you want your kids to see it. You're just supposed to imbibe it from the water. It's like fluoride in the water. You're just supposed to drink it. Yeah. You're never supposed to think about what it is that you're what, it, what you're imbibing. And, and it's supposed minute... to turn you into a
7: lesbian. No, wait, no, no, no. That's not what it doesn't do. That Alex Jones. Or... Yeah, no, no, it doesn't do that. No, it
0: doesn't. No, I... know, but there were a lot of people who started to think, well, you know what? Maybe it's not impolite for me to actually live out my values the way I wish to live out my values. And so, Lightyear is the biggest failure Pixar has ever had by bar none. It's not close. And, and they
4: never, they they won't, even, they won't even acknowledge that it's a culture war until we fight back. Mm-hmm. They, they go into our schools and they say to our children, oh, you know, you can change your sex and if your parents tell you not to, you can come to school and do it secretly, you can dress up as the other sex secretly and all this. And we go like, nah, I don't want you to just tell our kids that. It's a culture war. Why are you fighting a culture war? You, they started it, they started it. We're only finally, finally, finally firing back. And I think you're right, once, once we start to fire back, I think they're done. I yep. think they're done. Right.
6: right. This is. And actually, I think the coolest part of the documentary is that you went to Africa, because that's such a household discussion my home because my husband's always like these conversations if you're, when you're in the bush of Africa, they don't even understand the concept of lesbian and gay yet alone <laughs> trying to explain to them what it means to be a trans man or a trans woman and it, it kind of goes back to what I always talk about which is this concept of over civilization. Like humanity wants to constantly strive towards progress but what happens when we've actually kind of Progress to, like, good civilization is we get to this point where people are actually going so progressive that we're regressive. We see this everywhere. We've gotten so progressive that you just walked around America and asked a basic question, what is a woman? And no one could give you a straight answer. But then you got on a plane and went to Africa, and they're supposed to be, you know, living behind, and they can answer your question clearly, and they look at you like you're absolutely Looney Tunes. It's the same with Black Lives Matter, right? We've gotten so progressive on the race issues that actually we're just asking for segregation again. Right? (laughs) Please only see me (laughs) as a black person, in every space that I walk into. I mean, that's where America has really gotten into, this circumstance of...
3: Our friend Bill Whittle talks about progress, and he says... (laughs) He says, one side, the right, believes that when you're walking uphill, it's progress. The other side, the left, believes if you keep walking
5: after the peak and start going downhill, it's still progress. (laughs) (laughs) The other... uh in Africa, this ties us back to, the, to Roe v. Wade, because there was a moment, there are so many moments in Africa that, that couldn't make it into the, the final film, but the, the whole thing was just just spectacular, and there was one moment where I was um, touring the inside of one of these huts. The huts are made of cow dung, okay, this is what they're, this is what they're living in, very tiny huts, very dark, and I'm talking to a, a woman who's a mother, and she sleeps on a bed with, like, with her whole family, on this bed made of a cowhide. And I tell her, and I ask her if she's, if she's happy. And the question doesn't even make any sense to her because, like, of course, I'm happy. What do you mean? I have my family, I have my kids. Why, why would I not be happy? And then I, I tell her that, um, well, you know, in, in, where I come from in America, there, there are people who think that for a woman to be happy, she has to not have kids at all. And she needed to have that repeated by the translator because she didn't even understand. She didn't understand the concept of that. And then she laughed. She thought it was funny that people would see the world that way. And that's. Because these are people who are just situated in their everyday lives, doing their duties, fulfilling their roles in society and in their families, yeah. and uh, they just don't have—they're not plagued by the same sort of questions that we are.
6: Right. Yeah. Overprivileged, become an insane asylum.
5: So this is the
3: moment in which we live—a moment in which our our country has progressed past the peak of the mountain, uh, a moment in when in which asking someone, you know, using the word truth in a question sends them into a tailspin, a world in which the, the greatest cultural force of the last century, Disney, is now actively trying to destroy our civilization out from under us. That's the fight that the Daily Wire has been called to. That's what we've been doing these last seven years. And then after the intermission, we're going to tell you what we're going to be for these, doing for these next seven years. Uh, we think you're going to be excited about it. All of this, of course, happens because of our dailywire.com subscribers. We're so grateful to them for their subscriptions. <laughs> a lot of people asked when we first announced that we were going to be releasing what is a woman, You know, why are you putting it behind a paywall? Why isn't it out for free? And the answer is because it cannot be out for free. You cannot make this kind of content. For free you can only make this con- kind of content if you have people like the dailywire.com subscribers who are willing to actually who believe it has value and they're willing to trade money for that value that's why the Aston Martin out front is a rental <laughs> Because we have to make a lot more great content before we'll feel like we are in the right buying one for ourselves. <laughs> and then we will. <laughs> uh, we're gonna be telling you about the future. We want you right now, uh, if you're watching at home, go to questions at because in the second part of the show, We're going to do a rapid-fire Q&A. We usually do this reserved for only our DailyWire.com subscribers, but because this is a huge show and I'd have huge announcements to come after the intermission, we want to include everyone. So again, questions at DailyWire.com. Get your questions in now so that we can answer them after the intermission. And the last thing I want to tell you guys before we leave is is, uh, I love it when you're at a wedding or a funeral and a baby cries. A lot of times if you're a parent and you have a young child and you're, you're at a very solemn, a very special, a very meaningful occasion like a wedding or a funeral and your baby starts crying, you're embarrassed. You try to hush the baby. But it's actually such a beautiful act of humanity for life to continue. And we live in a moment today, thank God, for the first time in this country where we can say life is about to continue at a rate that it has not been allowed to continue in this country for a long time.
7: You know, you, know and, say, and, and, you know what they say, Jeremy? You know what they say? If your community is not crying, it's dying. You yeah, want those yeah, babies true. out there crying. You do.
3: Another, another beautiful, solemn occasion, besides weddings, besides funerals, um, is a dailywire.com all-access photo shoot.
6: <laughs> 100%.
3: And while we were backstage, 300 uh, of you who are here tonight paid the upcharge, to get to shake hands with the God King and get a picture, and shake hands with Ben Shapiro and see if he was really five foot nine. <laughs> I am. <laughs> and, and so I'm taking a picture, and I look over, and out of the corner of my eye, I see one of the most dist- one of the most ridiculous, ludicrous acts ever committed by a man, and yet one of the most beautiful. When Sergio proposed to Kayla. <laughs> right in front of Ben Shapiro. This happened 30 minutes <laughs> before the show. I think we ac- are, th- are. Hey, they? Sergio, Kayla, where are you guys at?
6: Where are they? That's so cute. they are pointing over there. There they are. There they are. Right <laughs> there.
3: Here's the video.
6: Oh my gosh! That's well, so great.
3: Sergio and and Kayla, everybody. (laughs) All right. That is so sweet. We want to see your hands. We want you to leave a little room for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) We want you to stay right where we can see you until the big day. And then we want you to get busy making as many little Sergios and little (laughs) Kaylas as is humanly
0: possible. Uh, You know, as the... Angel of love who brought this beautiful couple together. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I can't think of a public figure more fitted to watch a wedding proposal given my deep wellsprings of emotion, something I'm known for. And watching this, my heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> Azaltov.
3: Now go buy some swag, go buy some drinks, go buy some uh, popcorn. We're gonna go to the back and use the restrooms because we've been up here for a long time. And we're gonna see you in 15 minutes and tell you about the future.
9: (laughs) Welcome back to the comments section, I'm Brett Cooper. There's a woman who married a doll. I'm losing all hope. Have you ever been called a toilet brush before?
5: I have not. Well, this is a lot you, you have
9: items. been now.
7: And I'm not crazy, right? Like she looks too much like Ben Shapiro.
9: Blue check Twitter lost its damn mind. She is the darling of the Daily Wire, Gina Carano.
5: The darling of the Daily Wire? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, are. that's the
2: sweetest thing ever.
9: You know, if you thought that we were finished talking about insane people? We're not. We're never done. You should be worried about us because we have common sense. Because our arguments are reaching people. It's because we're based.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
9: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the comment section. I'm Bray Cooper. Hi. So, we launched the comment section less than four months ago, and right now we are approaching 700,000 subscribers. (laughs) And we just passed 200 million total video views. (laughs) So, thank you. Um, In our pitch meeting with the lowercase god king himself, he said verbatim, I don't get this show. It's not for me, but I know there's an audience for it. Clearly, he was right, as he usually is. Uh, He understood that this type of non-traditional content was the future for our movement, and for some crazy reason, he trusted me to lead it. (laughs) comment section I am able to fill a void for people searching for a laid-back common-sense perspective without the perverted values that are corrupting our society, to put it mildly. Um, I actually had a comment that came up on one of my videos the other day that I wanted to share with you that I feel like highlights this well. A man said, I'm a liberal but honestly listening to some of your viewpoints has started to change my mind. I was (laughs) pro-choice. There we go. I was pro choice, but I am moving to be moderately pro life. Which I think is pretty cool. You see, the mainstream media has a very certain way that they portray reality in order to further their narratives. And it's usually not honest. Shocking. Um, and I have found that people are a lot more reasonable than journalists would like us to think. People are waking up, and I see this in comments, but I also see this in my subscriber base, which, shockingly, is made up largely of disgruntled liberals and political moderates. They are craving content that is unafraid to stray from the popular prescribed narrative. Content that is in search of the truth. Therefore, I I am so proud and I am so grateful to be backed by a company that takes risks and that is in the fight. (laughs) Um. (laughs) And that truly never fails to go against the grain. And this is only the beginning. So to talk more about how the Daily Wire is taking ownership of the future, I am so honored to introduce Daily Wire God King and co-CEO, Jeremy Boring. (laughs)
3: She says I trusted her, but in all honesty, I thought she was Ben Shapiro for the first three weeks she worked for the company. (laughs) You know, it's hard to actually put into words just how successful Brett's show is. 200 million views in four months. Makes her one of, if not the fastest growing, not political channel, but channel of any kind on YouTube. It's a it's an unimaginable number. It's the kind of number that took the Daily Wire when we were first founded years to accumulate that number of views, and Brett's been able to accomplish it in four months because she is speaking to people that no one has ever bothered to speak to before. So let's give it up one more time for Brett Cooper. <laughs> As we've said a few times tonight, by happy coincidence, we're hosting this wonderful live broadcast on the, to the day, seven-year anniversary of Ben signing his employment agreement and founding the company. Some of the people who are here tonight were there at that very beginning. Caleb and I, of course, Levi, who's here with us, Jonathan Hay, Others who are here today, some of whom write pseudonymously, so I can't even say their names. Uh, Very quickly thereafter, John Bickley uh, came to join us, and he's still here tonight with Georgia Howe. They host Morning Wire, one of the most important shows that we're doing. John and Georgia. We launched Morning Wire because we knew that it's not enough to comment on the news. The left actually originates all of the news. They originate all of the journalism, and they speak to a group of people the conservatives are not great at speaking to, and that's women. Uh, women listen to shows put out by the New York Times. They listen to shows put out by NPR. They listen to shows that, are, that purport to be very straight, It's not that they don't have commentary. They're commentary from top to bottom. But they hide their commentary behind this veneer of objectivity. And that veneer of objectivity is one of their great weapons. It's one of the most manipulative tactics that they have. And we thought, you know, there are people who want to hear the news They want to hear the news with very little bias. And what bias is there, they want you to own. And one of the things that we're very proud of with Morning Wire and with The Daily Wire more broadly, we own our biases. You know where we stand. That doesn't mean that we don't endeavor to tell the truth. We even endeavor to tell the truth when we think that our audience will be angry with us for telling the truth. Politics is not always a game that rewards the telling of the truth. Uh, But telling the truth doesn't mean that we're completely objective. We are not completely objective. We have a point of view. We are fighting for that point of view. We're fighting for that point of view because we believe that it's the last best hope for mankind short of God himself. And of course, the good thing about God is he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, whether we have a good website or don't have a good website. I don't claim to speak for for God. But we speak the truth as we understand it, and we hold ourselves to a very high standard. That's not the only new show that we've launched in the last year. Sitting right next to John in Georgia are our friends Crane & Co., These guys have brought such enormous energy to the Daily Wire, and yet again, why did we move into this space? It's because we wanted to compete for an audience that we don't think conservatives have historically done a very good job communicating with, and that, of course, is sports fans. Now, when I say conservatives haven't done a good job speaking to sports fans, that's not entirely true. Until about seven minutes ago, only conservatives spoke to sports fans. (laughs) But like every other institution in our culture, the left has permeated, the left has taken over, the left has driven out all dissenting voices. And we know that now, it's actually incredibly challenging to even enjoy sports because essentially we're told every day we're not welcome. And Crane & Co. is challenging that. They're saying, you have a right to sports. Sports are an important part of how a culture forms and they cannot drive us out of that space. So thank you guys. Since we launched The Daily Wire, you guys know, the the success has been unbelievable. The Ben Shapiro show, which started in my converted garage pool house, has, over the last seven years, been downloaded 1.6 billion times. The Daily Wire itself, the website, has received 7 billion page views. And for 18 months over the last two years, we were the number one publisher in the world, the most engaged publisher, in the, not the most engaged conservative publisher, not the most engaged news publisher, the most engaged publisher of any kind in the world on the number one platform, Facebook. <laughs> not to keep coming back to God, but sometimes I shudder to think, about all the human productivity that's been wasted on reading our website (laughs) and what he'll have to say about it one of these days. All of that, of course, was by design. When Ben and I were doing a progenitor company to this, we were working together on a project, and we had an idea. And the idea was twofold. One, it's not enough to criticize culture. Conservatives have to create culture. And two if you build it, they will come, is the greatest lie of the 20th century. You have to tell them about it. You have to engage in incredible amounts of marketing, and conservatives are terrible at marketing. (laughs) And so we founded the Daily Wire to deal with the second problem first. What if we weren't the first people to decide, let's write news stories that aren't subject to a huge left-wing bias. We weren't the first people to think, let's talk about important issues, not from a left-wing bias. Of course, there are many forebears, many giants on whose shoulders we stand in that department. What we thought we could bring uniquely to it was the idea of marketing those ideas to a massive audience. We had early success, not just in this company. Before we founded The Daily Wire, our friends at Prager University were getting started, and they had a very similar vision. What if instead of circulating white papers among the initiated, we actually tried to tell people about these ideas that we think are so important? And so we brought that attitude to the Daily Wire. We invested more in marketing than we invested in content in those early years. And if you know anything about how the actual culture is shaped, you know that Hollywood movies, the marketing budgets can cost as much or more than the films themselves. We want to have that same attitude. How do we actually tell people about these things. And then we wanted to create culture. But here's the thing: culture is hard. Culture is expensive. Now we were all LA guys, those original Daily Wire founders, Andrew Clavin. We were we're all guys who had worked in the industry, all guys who had worked in Hollywood, all West Coast guys. Probably we all still would be today if they hadn't absolutely destroyed the state in the last five years. (laughs) We knew that we could bring cultural skills to bear, but we also knew that we had nothing like the money necessary, nothing like the breadth of talent that would be necessary, and absolutely no ability to tell people about the cultural content we made, even if we were able to make it. And so we thought the way to solve problem number one is to get really famous. And what I mean by that is we want so many people to so regularly engage with our content that it's, it's like a spotlight. And when we decide to make cultural content one day in the future, we'll be able to shine the spotlight of the giant audience that we've won over through our you know, more traditional news and commentary content. We'll be able to point that audience to cultural content. And along the way, there were a lot of setbacks. Along the way, a lot of people even on our own team stopped believing that we would ever get there. But Ben and I, Caleb, we were dogged about this. We knew that this was the future, and if we just kept winning, we could get there. And see, this is the difference between the Daily Wire and there are many good conservative nonprofits out there, but there are many bad conservative nonprofits out there. The, bad, the, the nonprofit mentality that permeates the right is, on the whole, a negative. There are certain things that only nonprofits can do, but the nonprofit mentality allows conservatives to win by losing. Something goes wrong, and you send out a fundraising email. We decided from the very beginning the Daily Wire must be a for-profit company. Our lives have to depend on winning. We can only win by winning. And so we won. And we won, and we won, and we won. And then, COVID happened. And in the middle of June in 2020, when the whole world was shut down, when no one was going to work, I read an article. I should have looked it up before I came out. I believe it was in Rolling Stone, but I could be wrong, which essentially said, it's time to move away from Law & Order SVU. And the reason was, it's time to stop watching Law & Order SVU because even though it's about a badass female detective who takes down dirty male sex offenders, <laughs> it promulgates the lie that some cops are good. And I thought a Hollywood in, in 2020, a Hollywood that will not make shows about good cops would be as if in 1960, Hollywood decided it couldn't make Westerns. They were literally turning on their bread and butter properties. They were literally turning on their audiences, not just having some disdain for their audience, which they've had for a long time, but actually trying to push their audience away. And Caleb and I were sitting in the office that day, and we realized we achieved our goal. We have the giant spotlight, the marketing spotlight, the audience spotlight that we can put on cultural content. We have the financial resources to begin, to begin, making cultural content. But we had also built something by accident. We didn't even know we were doing it. We had built the ability to distribute cultural content because we had built a piece of technology to allow people to subscribe in order to watch video versions of our podcasts. And that technology was agnostic as to what kind of content we actually put on it. And on in, in that period of time, Dallas Sonier entered our lives. Dallas is here tonight. And Dallas said, uh, hey guys, I've got a movie and Hollywood ain't going to touch it. And that movie was Run, Hide, Fight, which became the first feature film released by The Daily Wire. The movie paid for itself in less than a week because conservatives are willing to support great content and ain't nobody giving it to them. And that's when things started to change. The very nature of the Daily Wire began to change. Here's the thing. We didn't start moving away from great news. We didn't start moving away from great opinion journalism. We didn't start moving away from commentary and analysis. We doubled down on all of those things. We started hiring investigative journalists. We started uprezzing our editorial team. We started sending people like Luke Rosiak into the Virginia School Board. (laughs) And we started helping Republican governors get elected in blue states. But we also started developing cultural content. And in the time in between, we've released, as you know, three more feature films, including one that I'm very proud of, and the entire cast is here tonight, our most recent feature film, which allowed us to undo the damage done by Disney when they unjustly canceled Gina Carano, Terror on the Prairie. Gina Carano, everybody. I want to tell you something. Gina and I have never once talked about politics. I have no idea who Gina votes for. I don't know if Gina's a conservative or not, and I'm not gonna ask her while you're all watching. (laughs) But I can tell you this: Gina was not canceled by Disney for being a rabid right winger. She was canceled by Disney for not being a rabid left winger. It is the most (laughs) unjust cancellation that we have ever seen since cancel culture began. And the movie that Gina produced with Dallas for us, Terror on the Prairie, is an absolute triumph. It is the the, uh, metaphor for Gina's life. It is a woman standing up against those people who would take everything for her and saying no. And that's exactly what Gina's doing in her real life. Nick Searcy is also in the movie, and if you clap for him, I'll walk off the stage. I will walk off the stage. (laughs) In addition to being an absolutely terrific actor, Uh, Nick is a fierce warrior for this country. He's one of the most outspoken actors to come out of Hollywood. He never backs down from a fight. He's a regular son of a bitch, I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) And we're very glad that he's on our side, Nick. And, of course, not content to cancel Gina for no good reason. Disney also decided that they wanted all of your kids to be transgendered. And so we decided to spend $100 million making kids' content. Now, you may say, God King, where does this $100 million come from? I'm wondering myself. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you this. The Daily Wire has been approached by six different entities in the last three months about doing a public offering by way of a SPAC, and we have said no. Because money ain't free. If you want to know, why great companies, companies filled with people who I deeply respect and deeply admire, companies like Fox News will run stories about celebrating children who doubted their gender before they were three years old and then transitioned as teenagers. If you want to know why that happens, it's because money ain't free. It's because when you enter into these capital markets, both public and private, when you take money, you are taking people's opinions. And we have made a decision that, and I don't know if we'll be able to do this forever, that for as long as it is humanly possible, we are not going to take money from people who do not agree with the core mission of this company. (laughs) I appreciate that you will all clap for me continuing to be poor. <laughs> no, here's the hard part. That means the money has to come from you. It means the people who empower this aren't going to be capital markets. It's not going to be fundraising from billionaires. It's not going to be fundraising from family offices. It's not going to be fundraising from family offices. It's going to be trading value to more and more and more subscribers so that we can keep creating more and more and more value, which we trade again for more and more and more subscribers, just like the way the left does it. If you watch one of our movies and you think, I mean, they didn't quite do everything that I want them to do. Yeah. That's like, it's like you've fallen for the lie that the new dad believes when he goes down to the gift shop at the hospital and buys himself a world's greatest dad ball cap. (laughs) He's not even a mediocre dad. He's been a dad for 14 and a half minutes. We are just getting started. The world's greatest ad ball cap is an aspirational statement. We want to be the world's greatest media company. You have to help us. You have to stick with us. Give us a little bit of room to try. Give us a little bit of room to miss. We're, not, we're going to knock it out of the park, and no one else is going to do it. When you subscribe, you will not be alone. The Daily Wire is pleased to announce tonight that we have hit a huge milestone 890,000 active subscribers. Netflix has 200 million. That's one company. Disney has 200 million subscribers. That's two companies HBO, Paramount Plus, Peacock, Stars, Showtime, on and on and on and on it goes. To compete, we have to grow. To compete, we have to scale. To compete, we have to do those things together. We are in this fight together. We believe every day it is our advertisers and, most importantly, our subscribers who make it possible for us to be in this fight at all, and it will not be enough to get to one million, and it will not be enough to get to two million, and it will not be enough to get to 10 million, but it will be a damn good start. but here's the problem. Nobody really wants a news company to make cartoons. Nobody really wants, like, the the latest, greatest Western brought to you by the New York Times, right? No one wants a great, like, Stranger Things-type series brought to you by WAPO. (laughs) And so, As we continue to grow, as we continue to expand, as we continue to create content outside of that initial box that we built seven years ago, we've started wondering, what's next? What's beyond the daily wire? What can hold all of these new ideas? What can hold new kinds of talent? People who don't agree with us on every issue, but who are our allies in the broader cultural battle, the broader battle for the ideas that... It used to be that the vast majority of Americans shared. What's a brand that can contain movies, a brand that can contain TV series, a brand that can contain kids' content? And we decided the Daily Wire is just not enough. We need something beyond the Daily Wire, and that's why tonight I'm proud to announce that as of this very moment, we are launching Daily Wire+. Plus. it's the daily wire, plus all of those other things. <laughs> you know we've had some technology problems over the last 30 days. We launched Matt Walsh's seminal documentary, What is a Woman?, and we immediately brought under an enormous DDoS attack that I know made life for many of you very difficult in those first 24 or 48 hours trying to watch the film. A lot of people who wanted to subscribe couldn't. Worse, a lot of people were able to subscribe. We took their money. They still couldn't watch the movie. It was, it was terrible. It was humiliating. It was malicious. It was an attack aimed at stopping the work that we do. So we've got to do better. We've got to build more. Over the next nine months, our entire tech infrastructure is going to be rebuilt. By January, Daily Wire Plus will be the best piece of technology that exists on the right today. And it'll be more than just a platform where you can watch content. It'll be a platform where you can interact with other subscribers and create the kind of community that we need because we are all in this fight together. And it will have more movies. And it will have scripted series. And it will have reality television. And it will have kids content. There is unbelievable kids' content in the market. The beauty of kids' content is that unlike adult content, there's always new kids, and they go back and watch it. So there's an unbelievable library of content. Most of it's at Disney, let's be honest. But it's not that the content isn't great. It's that you can't trust the platform. You can't put your kids in front of a classic piece of Disney content because you don't know that the very next thing that plays won't be that not-so-secret gay agenda that teaches your daughter that she's a boy. That's why we have to have Daily Wire Plus. And so we've already announced it, but I want to give you an update. On Daily Wire Plus in the spring of 2023, we will be rolling out our very first kids content, the stuff we promised you back in March. And here tonight, I have for you the first tiny taste, the first tiny teaser of our very first animated show, Chipchilla.
5: It's perfect. (sighs) Yeah, that works. Not bad.
3: Oh, wait. There. Now it's perfect. Oh,
9: we got to get the sign in there. Here I no, 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 no. no
8: sure so sure so <laughs> so so
5: you. Yeah. You know what? I'm saying it's a hit.
7: I knew they'd like it.
5: They love it.
8: That's pretty fun. Let me get in on that.
3: Why does it matter? It matters because kids go to school for 40 hours a week and then they engage in pop culture for 40 more hours every week. That means for 80 hours of a child's week, you are turning them over to the left. A good parent might spend 15 minutes a day in deep, in not deep, but meaningful conversation with their kids. I don't mean wash your hands, make your bed. I mean actually engaging with them on ideas. A great parent might take their kid to church for one hour or two hours or three hours a week. The other 80, they're watching Disney. The other 80, they're online. The other 80, they're in public schools. We have to challenge the left every single place that it lives. You have to help us. You can wait and subscribe when the content is there. I would ask you to subscribe today at Daily Wire Plus and help us actually bring this content to life. (laughs) The Daily Wire Plus will let us do more than just create more and more and different kinds of content. It will also let us work with other creators out there in the landscape who we think are doing incredibly important work and serve as a kind of technology distribution and marketing platform for them. Sometimes a unique marketing and distribution platform for them, other times an additional marketing and distribution uh, platform for them. As you know, this company from before it was ever founded has had a great relationship with PragerU. PragerU started with a simple premise between Alan Estrin and Dennis Prager that if you gave them five minutes, they would give you an education. I love when the left gets angry and says, they're not a real university. You're damn right. You can trust your kids with them. (laughs) Since its founding, PragerU videos have been viewed five billion times. Tonight, I'm proud to tell you that not only is the Daily Wire continuing its relationship with PragerU, which means hosting their entire library behind our paywall to bring value to our subscribers and additional audience for PragerU, we're actually expanding our relationship. Right now, Prager is already in the business of giving you terrific five-minute videos, giving you terrific kids' content. They're one of the earliest companies into the space of making premium kids' content for conservatives. But we're going to launch something behind our paywall only, a completely exclusive piece of content, a premium piece of content, called the PragerU Master's Program. These will be highly produced, incredibly deep, 45-minute episodes featuring Dennis Prager himself, and he's here tonight to tell you a little bit about it.
0: Dennis, it's been a long time in coming. First of all, well, thank you for being the second Jew in the state of Tennessee. <laughs> but actually, you know, I've, uh, I have a family history going back with you personally. Obviously, you are a formative person in my own parents' experience moving toward religiosity in Judaism as you were for so many people moving toward deeper, more religious thought. And in your new PragerU Masterclass Series for DW+, you're going to be taking the deepest issues, you're going to be diving all the way down to the bottom in 45 minutes or less. So I'm going to give you like a few minutes right now to dive down to this question. What is the biggest moral crisis facing the country right now? Secularization. I have devoted my life.
10: Most conservatives don't agree with us or with me on this particular subject. Whenever I summarize my life's work, and i will be 40 years on radio in August, and whenever I summarize it, I say, really, there has been one overwhelming theme, the consequences of secularism. Secularism is wonderful for government, it's wonderful for the sciences, and it's awful for the rest of life, and most conservatives don't know that. Many religious people don't know it and certainly don't know how to make the case for it, but Everything that we're seeing, all the chaos that we are seeing now, is a result of the death of God, and the Bible as the, as the most important book in American life. And Now, I want to tell you, Ben doesn't know this, and I can't think of a more appropriate place to say this. It's a very touching, tiny, little story you will all be moved, and even Ben, I'm not, I can't bet on that, but. Uh, so, I spoke in the Czech Republic about a, a year ago, like exactly a year ago. I spoke to some young people in the Czech Republic, and a guy came over to me, a guy about 28 years old, and in front of all of those gathered, said as follows, I just want you to know and I'm going to choke up saying it, because my wife was present, and, and we were all overwhelmed. And she said, and this guy said to me, I just want you to know, Ben Shapiro brought me to conservatism, and you brought me to God." And that that beautiful?) And, and of course, my immediate reaction was, I didn't bring you to Conservatives. No, no, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. It was a joke. Okay. But uh, uh, I, I, I thought, this is the Czech Republic. We're being heard, we're being... We're, and, and it's important to me that kids and young people in the Czech Republic, I, I, I have a theory that Eastern Europe will save Western Europe in the final analysis, but that's, that's another issue. Anyway, uh, this project that I'm, I'm going to be doing with you... It's such a beautiful thing how much we, we work together. We have one employer, him, and uh, we uh, we also we know that is PragerU and and Daily Wire know that if America fails, the world will be plummeted into a dark, cruel age, and and, and th- that that's a given. As I've said so often, if they really gave the Nobel Peace Prize to those who deserved it, the American Armed Forces would win it every year. So, uh, Ben, the the thought of doing this whole series of very intense, but, but obviously fascinating, and even entertaining videos with you, is one of the one of the highlights of my life
0: well we obviously feel the same and we are so excited to have you on board and dennis I, I feel like we've reached a point in american life i would say five years ago i may have been more pessimistic about where no. the country was than any time and then during covid maybe even worse than that right and now i gotta tell you it feels like we're not seeing you know the actual light at the end of the tunnel. but it's starting to get a little lighter it feels like we're on the upswing it feels like finally for the first time really in my adult lifetime we are really beginning to win. Oh, uh,
10: I, I, I do agree with that, but I, I do want to say something to—not to pour any cold water on that. That's a fact that we are beginning. But I want you to know, and I think you'll appreciate this, uh, I've, I'm asked all the time, so Dennis, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And this is my—not only the answer I give people, but it's what I believe. But of course, I tell people what I believe. So. I shouldn't have had to add that. Uh, But in any event, I say, you know what, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in either optimism or pessimism because, ironically, they both conserve a negative purpose. The optimist thinks everything will turn out well, why fight? The pessimist thinks everything will turn out lousy, why fight? I never ask if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I ask, what do I have to do? And the answer is, fight. That is the only question that matters. And I, I, I just... A, a moment that changed my life was standing at Normandy Beach and seeing all the gravestones of basically kids who were 20 years old being slaughtered by Nazi machine guns on, on the beach. And I think about them a lot. I took a vow that day, I did, uh, to myself. If they could die for America and freedom, I could live for America and freedom. So that was the vow I took. But I raise it because of the pessimism-optimism question. I don't know if every guy getting on that beach was an optimist. They didn't ask, are they optimistic? They asked, what do I have to do? That's what we have to ask every day. What do I have to do? And the answer is clear. Fight.
0: Dennis, this is the thing I think people love about you. It's one of the things that people love about us here at Daily Wire is that we're fighting and we're trying to fight smart. It's not just about That's fighting, right. it's also about picking the right targets, it's about hitting the right targets, it's about being kind and cordial even while you're pummeling the wrong ideas and this is something that, that you really are an expert in, can you talk about you know, the approach that conservatives should be using in trying to convince other people, because you've convinced millions of people into conservatives, I mean, not as many as I have, but you know, lots of people <laughs> into conservatives. <laughs>
10: I met... This is, the best answer I could give is a guy I met at Philadelphia Airport about three years ago, and being a guy and, and being heterosexual... I don't walk around thinking, is this guy handsome? So if I meet a guy who I think is handsome, he's handsome.
0: So, at, so Dennis, the guy... this is not Disney. It's I'm sorry? Daily Wire Plus. This is not Disney. Okay. Right.
10: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What can I tell you? I say what, I, what I, I think and sleep well as a result. So I meet this guy, I'm 6'4", he's 6'4", but he's thinner than me, and uh, anyway, he's so he starts, he comes over, to Dennis Prager, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, it's, it's wonderful, and I detect a very, very slight accent, and uh, I, I, so I say, even though the left, for some sick reason, says it's wrong to ask people where they're from, I can't think of a more wonderful question to ask. It means I'm interested in you, <laughs> right? Isn't that like a healthy question to ask? So I say to the guy, I said, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm just curious, where are you from? He go, and he says, Norway. So, again, saying what I think, I go, you're a conservative in Norway? <laughs> and, and his answer was awesome. He said, I don't know if I'm conservative, I'm just logical. <laughs> that, and that is, it, that is the whole point. I have, all, I have believed that if you just make logical points, logical and moral points, you will win anyone who is open to hearing you.
0: Well, folks, that's exactly what you're going to get at the Prager University Master Class at Daily Wire Plus, those logical arguments that you can hand to all your friends, all the people you work with. You are going to become a person who's now a warrior and a messenger for all of the messages that Dennis has been pushing. And Dennis, I gotta say, it's such an honor and a pleasure to finally be officially working with you here at Daily Wire Plus. Thank you, my friend.
10: Thank you. Thank you all. I look forward. All
0: right, great. And folks. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. We're not done quite yet.
3: So it's been a good seven years. (laughs) We've accomplished so many of our goals. We're so excited about the things that have come. We're so excited about the things that are yet ahead. We're so thrilled to be bringing you Daily Wire Plus. We're so thrilled to be bringing you more and more culture-shaping content, thrilled to be bringing you more journalism, more movies, probably some more consumer goods, because, you know, a men's razor, men aren't the only people who shave. That's for the next town hall. And we're thrilled to be bringing you kids content in the spring of 2023. We can't wait to go through the next seven years with you. But I will tell you one more thing since you're here. I mean, sure, Daily Wire Plus is going to have the Daily Wire. And sure, we're going to expand our relationship with PragerU. And sure, we're going to make more movies. And sure, we're going to make kids content. But I got one more plus. Here it is.
0: So that's a thing. So Jordan, Jordan Peterson, it is obviously a massive honor having you on the Daily Wire Plus platform, bringing all this amazing content to millions more people, hundreds of millions more people. And here's the thing, folks. The first series from Jordan Peterson is up right now, literally right now, at Daily Wire Plus. It is titled Dragons, Monsters, and Men. Take a look.
11: One of the things I tell young men, well, and young women as well, but the young men really need to hear this more, I think. You should be a monster, an absolute monster, and then you should learn how to control it. So a man who's capable of aggression but has it under control is a way more useful man than one who cannot do that. And so you're willing to go get a job, but you're terrified of an interview. It's like, there's a dragon for you, because you want to fight the dragons that guard the gates of the treasure that you wish to attain. productivity requires aim, orientation, responsibility, discipline, that willingness to work, that willingness to make sacrifices, which is the hallmark of maturity in the service of a higher goal. It orients you solidly in the world if you do that, and it gives you a dragon to fight.
0: So, Jordan, obviously, this new series, Dragons, Monsters, Men, the first one that we're doing together, this series is focused in on how men can be men. Why do you think there is such a crisis of masculinity in the first place, and why are there so many people out there who are angry at you for even talking to men?
11: Well, I think, it's, I think you could think about it as a consequence, in some sense, of the lack of a concept of original sin, oddly enough. I mean, people bear an existential burden, you know, it's an intrinsic part of life to, I suppose, to feel guilty in relationship to nature, and to feel guilty in relationship to culture. You know, it's difficult for us to live in harmony with the natural world, and for the natural world to live in harmony with us, by the way, and none of us are all we could be on the social front, and one of the consequences, and so we we have that sense intrinsically, you know, that there's a lack in us that needs to be redressed. And unfortunately, that can be weaponized and has been. And what I see happening to young men in particular, boys as well, not just young men, and maybe even, you know, maybe starting at the age of toddlers, is that we have this sense in the world that human beings live in antagonism to nature and that we're actually a malevolent force. And that our social structures, which are clearly capable of the commission of atrocity, are fundamentally oppressive, patriarchal in their nature. And so then, if you're a male in a society with that ethos, the motive force that drives you into the world to live is associated with rapaciousness and despoilation on the natural front, and then oppression and atrocity on the social front, it's like, well, then, if you're the least bit conscientious, because this sort of accusation hurts conscientious young men the most, then the best you can do is, well, let's say castrate yourself. How would that be? And that would be real comical, except that it's also happening. So, I guess that's why... That's why I think there's a crisis, and there's something serious at the root of it, right? Because we do have to take the fact of our, the potential damage we can do to the natural world and the social world. We have to take that seriously, but the, the proper consequence of taking that seriously is not to commit Harry Carey, let's say, in a fit of moral... Anxiety and take yourself completely out of the game, but that's the insistence now and it's really and I see that psychoanalytically, you know, I see that as a Manifestation at a symbolic level of something like Well symbolically that's associated with the devouring mother, right? It's it's an overweening and destructive false compassion that has this devouring quality and Yeah, and that's basically where we're
0: at so so No, it's One of the things that's striking about the sort of hatred that you've gotten from so many is that you, you've literally been asked why you're even bothering to speak to men. I mean, there is this crisis of yeah. masculinity, right? There is yeah. this idea that every form of masculin- masculinity is toxic. And you've spent your life trying to talk to men and say, no, no, you can channel that masculinity in not only a good way, but a necessary and productive and, and useful way. And people have gotten angry at you for this. Where do you think that's coming from? Why, w- w- that's obviously a good thing that you're doing. Why yeah. are so many people upset with you? For
11: well, that? I, the thing is, I never really set out to talk to men specifically. I, but I did set out, at least in part, to make a case for the utility of both the feminine and the masculine spirit. And it turned out that making the case for the masculine spirit was something that was more demanded by the culture, let's say. The anger, that's a complicated issue. We, we touched on some of it in relationship to the despoiling of nature and the idea of the oppressive and atrocity-committing atrocity patriarchy. But then there's another issue, too, which I think is germane. Um, because of family fragmentation, there's a very large number of women who have, just like there's a very large number of men who have never had a real word of encouragement in their whole life, It's a really sad thing to see. It's a really, really sad thing to see, to see that deeply, and to have seen that reflected in so many thousands of people. But there are many women who've never had a positive relationship with anyone male in their life. And so, one of the consequences of that, we know, for example, that younger women are more likely to be attracted to men who show dark triad traits, narcissistic, Machiavellian, and psychopathic. And people who have those traits are characterized by the mimicry of competence. And so what women want in men more than anything else is competent generosity, and the data on that are very clear. But you can mimic that if you're narcissistic, and if you're a young woman, you, woman, you can be deluded by that. It's partly because it points to the problem of dissociating competent confidence from the expression of power, per se. So we could call power I'll define that as the willingness and ability to use compulsion to attain your aims. Now, if you are someone who has a proclivity to manifest power, then that looks like the manifestation of both ambition and will. And if you haven't had a positive relationship with anyone masculine in your life, and maybe with not even with your own internal masculinity, say, you can't discriminate between power and competent the ambition that serves competence and so because that's terrifying because the power if you have had only negative relationships with men their their capability to use power becomes such a threat That it has to be opposed at all costs even if it manifests itself within the say within the developmental pathway of your own son and so So some of that's familial breakdown and then you have a multi-generational pattern of that that makes it even worse and so that's That's definitely part of it. You know, there's an ideological drum that's being beaten constantly both on the Sociological constructivist front, right? That's the oppressive patriarchy and then on the environmental front and then you add to that the fact that well on the leftists, especially the radical types, their whole damn doctrine It's the most pathological doctrine you could invent if you set out to invent a pathological doctrine and I I mean that I'm not making a joke I, I, I really mean that in the deepest possible sense the notion that The fundamental human motivation is the willingness and ability to use compulsion power power It's all about power and every time I hear that now from someone I think that is not a sociological observation That is a confession on your part And so, and it's also just complete bloody nonsense. I mean, you all, you all know this. You have friends because they're compelled to be your friends? Like, that's definitely not how you have friends. You might have bully henchmen that way, but you don't have friends. Power is an extraordinarily unstable basis to establish a marriage on. Plus, it just doesn't work because it turns out that women who are so annoying are very difficult to <laughs> oppress, you know, so you can try, but it's not that easy. And I don't think that we've been all that historically successful in doing so. But it's also a, pre- it's also a preposterous proposition because, because the expression of power within an intimate relationship does not produce intimacy or a relationship. The best it can produce is like a combination of tyranny and slavery and that does not characterize the institution of marriage per se so there is this insistence among the among the radicals that power is the fundamental motivation and that's and then you think too okay you're only motivated by power that means that we can only get along if our interests align because if you're motivated by power and i'm motivated by power and our interests don't align and there's nothing else but power then the only option I have is to turn you into an enemy and try to destroy you. Because we can't engage in dialogue, that's dialogos. And the reason we can't engage in dialogue is because there's no logos. There's just power. So there's no such... This is why it's a good thing for conservatives to understand. You have to understand that the debate about free speech on campus, in the deepest sense, is not a debate about who should be allowed to speak freely. That's nothing. That's, that's a trivial debate. You can even understand it in some sense, if I don't agree with you, maybe I don't want you to talk. But the, the debate is about something much deeper, which is whether or not the idea of free speech itself is just a mask developed essentially by Europeans to justify the oppressive patriarchy in the most devious possible way. And the answer the radicals have to that question is, yes, that's exactly what it is, and so there's, there's no free speech whatsoever. That's an illusion that's promulgated by people who are only trying to justify their claim to power. That's what the bloody argument is about. And so, and I just think all of that's, I, it's wrong in every way. It's wrong theologically, it's wrong psychologically, it's wrong scientifically. Even chimpanzees who have a patriarchal social structure, their social structures, if they are based on the on power, on compulsion. They're unstable, and the alpha chimps who use power are very likely to meet an extraordinarily brutal and premature end. So, Franz de Waal, the Dutch primatologist, has detailed out this wonderfully. He's shown that even among our closest biological relatives, it's the ability to make peace and to engage in reciprocal <laughs> interactions that constitutes the basis for a stable polity, even among chimps. And it's obviously the case that that's the proper basis for social relations, especially among free people. And I've been trying to puzzle out, uh, especially in my lecture to it recently, what the antithesis to power is, or to the will to power, let's say, in terms of arbitrary compulsion. And it's something like the spirit of free and voluntary play. And that's a wonderful thing to know. It's so optimistic. We you guys were mm-hmm. talking about optimism earlier, you know? If you're, so imagine this, is that if you structure your relations optimally, and I mean optimally, with yourself, with your intimate partner, with your family, with your community, the highest level of attainment of that structuring is the manifestation of the spirit of voluntary play. And that's so lovely because there's nothing better than playing fundamentally. And, you know, human beings and other mammals as well also have a biological circuit that mediates play. That was discovered by a man named Yak panksepp and he showed that Play is unbelievably important to the development of children for a variety of complicated reasons, partly because they're practicing to be competent adults, but also that it can be suppressed by almost any other emotion or motivation. So your kids can't really play if they're hungry or tired or wet or, or upset. The same would apply within your relationship. If there's stresses and tensions, the play disappears. But If you optimize the relationship and the circumstance, then the spirit of play can manifest itself. And I would also say that's also the fundamental purpose of fathers in some sense, is to imagine that paradise, that's a walled garden, that's what paradise means. So it's walls, structure, and then the garden inside is nature, and a nature that's tended. The the masculine role in, in child rearing is something like the erection of the walls, so that play can manifest itself within the walls. And that's a real good combination of security, because that's what the walls are for, but then the kind of freedom that allows for untrammeled development to occur in the most positive possible sense. And so I would say that those of us who are standing against the radicals who insist that the only human motivation is power can oppose that in part by putting forward the observation that the proper antithesis to that is the spirit of voluntary play. And that's what I hope we're going to do with the Daily Wire, right? Because that's what we've been doing, man.
0: Well, as I say, folks, we could not be more pumped up and ecstatic about having Jordan Peterson here at Daily Wire Plus. Dragons, Monsters, and Men, it's available right now at Daily Wire Plus. Jordan, you want to come join us here for the rest of Backstage? Absolutely, man. Got you there.
3: So, we're very pleased to be joined with what I think is the uh, greatest super band in the history of the rock era, <laughs> <laughs> the, the largest roundtable panel ever assembled. Uh, it's going to make it a little tough because it's not easy to hear up here, there's a lot of echo and so the crosstalk might be difficult with this many of us on stage. So what I've asked the team to do is put together about 30 questions uh, that our members have have submitted to us throughout the evening. I'm going to read these questions, and then if you'll just give me the little bit of grace on stage, it's it's hard. Give me just a little bit of grace to be able to moderate. We're going to kick these questions around. Uh, We'll give answers. We'll do our best to be quick. In fact, I'm going to say there's three rules on the stage tonight. Uh, Rule number one Don't try to answer a question unless I give it to you directly. Uh, Rule number two try to keep your answers under 75 minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) Rule number three uh, do not tweet that Ellen Page is a woman who had her breasts removed by a criminal doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Those those are the. Strike one. Strike one. (laughs) 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 This first question. I'm going to kick this first one to Drew because I actually know a very sad uh, story that happened during your own life uh, along these lines. And the question is, how is it possible to remain friends with people uh, while disagreeing with them vehemently, especially on black and white issues such as abortion? But I think you could probably plug in uh, any number of issues into that question
4: strangely, I've never found it difficult to remain friends with people I deeply disagree with because I am not as interested in their disagreement as I am in their hearts and what's coming out of them. I know many, I have many close friends whom I disagree with at a very deep level. But apparently this trait is not universally shared because I have lost many friends and I've lost relatives, uh, people very dear to me, uh, simply by my opinions. And I think the the answer is, is quite simple. It's the basic Christian idea that another person's inner life Uh, is as important to him as yours is to you, and both are equally important to God. And when you remember that, it's easy to let people disagree, as long as you're willing to speak the truth back at them, uh, whether they like it or not. This question's for Michael.
3: I don't know why I'm actually letting the audience tell me who the question is. (laughs) (laughs) You don't even need a moderator. (laughs) Michael, I don't advocate for this, but assuming it could be done without packing the court fully in favor of one political leaning or another, is there any logic to more than nine justices?
7: No, there is not. There have been other numbers of justices throughout the history of the United States, but the number has been settled at nine for a long time. And the last time that they tried to pack the court, it was done for nakedly partisan reasons. That was FDR who was trying to cram through his unconstitutional New Deal programs, and the court was saying no to him, so he was threatening to pack it. Mm-hmm. Now, he was we were able to avoid this constitutional crisis because the court eventually sort of just went along with the New Deal programs and it <laughs> saved the nine, nine justices. But it would, it would be done not for a reason of uh, government stability or better balancing out the three branches. It would be done in a nakedly partisan way. And then it's a never ending arms race. And when the Republicans get in, we pack all our judges and then it goes up and up. And we'll, eventually we'll have 330 million judges on the Supreme Court and we won't be able to get anything done. So I, I just think there is no logical reason. It would be, it would be the raw exercise of power. And uh, we would not have dialogue. We would not have a, an ordinary political order. We, we would very possibly not
3: have self-government. Candace, this is a great question. In a world where women and men seem to be switching roles and the meaning of strong woman seems to be being warped, what do you think it means to be a strong woman?
6: I think what it means to be a strong woman, a strong woman is to lean into your femininity, is to lean into your nature. Uh, I've never felt more sure... ...in my life or on my own two feet, more sure of who I am than when I got married and I started having children. Mm. You start to realize that nature... Nature overrides everything, Um, and I am trying to, in my best capacity, inspire women to recognize that before it's too late, before the curse, which Dennis and I have spoken about on his show and on my show. Um, Of rotten feminism, modern feminism, takes a hold of their life before it's too late. Because unfortunately, as women, we do have, uh, you know, our bodies are are a ticking bomb in terms of our fertility. And many women that grab onto these ideas when they're younger and believe that feminism is going to lead to happiness end up in a life of despair and sorrow because they never leaned into their femininity and their nature.
3: It is true. Men, Men have a longer time horizon for coming out of the fog. I'm going to break my own rule because this question—I I really want to hear everyone's thoughts on this particular question. Uh, on this stage, every single one of us is in a happy marriage, as far as I know. <laughs> my wife is not, but I am. I'm an <laughs> and good one. <laughs> Andrea asks a question which I think a lot of people have absolutely no framework for because we live in an era of the collapse of marriage in our society, you know, uh, the complete sort of breakdown of the family unit unit that you were describing a moment ago, Dr. Peterson. Uh, And so Andrea asks, what is the secret to a healthy and happy marriage? I think that's, it's actually a very well composed question, a healthy and happy marriage. Drew, start
4: with Uh, you. Yeah, I got 42 years, and my wife, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. and it's possible she's here tonight if she hasn't gotten up and gone home. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I used, to, I used to answer that it was simple politeness, treating each other with kindness. But then I realized what I was really saying is that it's gratitude. It is gratitude for the invisible things that uh, your spouse does for you every single day and does for you simply by existing and including her uh, and including him in, in your own achievements and in your own ego. Uh, my, my wife is as much a part of my ego as I am. Her pain is my pain, her joy is my joy. Uh, I hope she feels that way about me, and I think that, that takes time to establish, and kindness and gratitude are the way to take that time until you're so much one entity uh, that you just feel with each other and care so much for each other that you're there for one another when you need them. Mm.
5: Can we, uh... <laughs> can we, can we go around this way? Because I don't want to have to go after Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I'll allow it. <laughs> All right. uh, I think... Look, I, I think that... Uh, uh, I think... Actually, to be honest, I was going to say gratitude, so I actually have nothing to say now. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think a big, a big key to a, to, a, to a healthy marriage is to root out uh, the spirit of competition in, in a marriage um, because, or at least to channel it in a healthy way because a lot of times, especially when you bring kids into the, into the mix, you get into this competitive thing where it's like, well, I did this around the house and I was up with the kid you know, in the middle of the night for X amount of hours and you're not doing this and, you're, and you've got this scorecard. Score you're keeping score all the time. And uh, that's why I think it's so toxic these days when you hear from people that, well, a marriage is supposed to be 50-50. You know, it'd be 50-50 equal partners. And uh, that's exactly the wrong approach because then you're always measuring, well, I'm at 49 right now and you're at 51. Uh, No, you both just give of yourselves 100% and um, you don't worry about competition. (laughs) And you channel the competition through board games. In your marriage. (laughs) (laughs) You you take the board games very seriously. My wife and I have just gone to bed angry at each other because of board games before. Like the Bible says to do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's okay as long as it's for board games. Yeah. Yeah, Well, we
6: banned board games in my house when my husband and I decided to play Scrabble and we realized he had English spelling of words. Mm. So (laughs) obviously honor is not spelled with a U. We're in America. This is America. This is America. This is America. Just saying that for the record. Um, But I'm I'm going to kind of say my last answer again and restate that the symbiotic nature of the masculinity and the femininity. I'm not trying to be my husband. My husband is not trying to be me. And especially when you have children, you realize how uh, children really grow when they have both. You know, the things that my husband is concerned with when it comes to our child are things that I don't even think twice of. Um, He needs that maternity and that paternity. And it's, it's just been beautiful to see how... You know how right the Bible is on absolutely everything.
3: <laughs> Dennis, you, so you have a unique perspective on this because you say that divorce is a mitzvah. Is it
10: what? Well, that, that <laughs> is actually, as Ben can, can attest to, it is a statement actually by the greatest Jewish commentator, uh, Dennis Prager. I. I uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> thank you Uh, I I would I I will take it slightly differently what to avoid Mm. rather than what to do Uh, and there are two things that I think people need to avoid and not in order of importance one is taking the other for granted I think that people should date uh, for the rest of their lives when you try to win that person to be your spouse look at how much you did make sure how you looked how you acted, everything about you was, I want to win this person. Then you win that person, and then within a year, or 10 years, or 20 years, it all goes to hell. I stop I stopped trying to win this person. My favorite English verb is earn. It's one of the only languages in the world that has the word earn. Hmm. In, uh, in all Latin languages, you say, I win an income. In America, in English, you say, I earn. The other one is my happiness thesis, uh, that uh, you are not allowed to inflict your bad mood on others any more than you can inflict your bad breath on others. (laughs) You are obligated to wash away your bad mood just as you wash away your bad breath.
3: Someone named Pam asked, what is a man? And I'm going to answer the question by going after Dr. Peterson. <laughs>
11: well, um, I actually don't think it's a good question. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why. I mean, I think happy is a pretty low goal. I mean, first of all, there's going to be lots of times in your marriage where you are seriously not happy. And Sometimes that's going to be because you're having conflict with your partner But sometimes it's going to be because all hell's broken loose around you Mm. And then if if you judge the success of your marriage on your happiness Like then the same thing happens if you judge your success in life On the basis of your happiness. What do you have when it's nothing but suffering and That's going to be plenty of your life. And so the whole orientation of that. Question in that sense is wrong. What you want to have in your marriage is, I would say, first of all, first and foremost, uh, like a scrupulous honesty. And I don't just mean that you tell each other the truth, because you can be brutal with the truth. I mean the kind of honesty that's devoted towards thriving in love, you know? And you want to act nobly in your relationship. You want to be reliable and productive and generous and, and, And then if you're lucky, now and then, you might be happy, and you might have a clear enough conscience so that in those rare moments where you are truly happy, you can also enjoy it without guilt. And so you aim at something a lot higher than happiness, and then you welcome it if it deigns to land on you for brief moments of time.
3: I never figured you for a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got all the guilt. You know.
11: <laughs> it's, not a, it's
3: not a stretch, man.
7: <laughs> that is, you know, that Catholic aspect is very important. In the Italian culture, there is a concept known as divorce Italian style. And divorce Italian style is when you murder your husband or wife <laughs> because there's no other way to get out of the marriage you are in it and i think I actually think this is a very important thing i mean i 'm half joking I, I, I i'm half joking I, if I ever end up separated in my marriage, it will be at knife point by my wife. It will not be because I, I think if you if you both go into a marriage agreeing on what it is, on what the institution is, and you say, look, we're in it, we're not gonna leave it, this is, no matter how terrible and miserable it might seem at times, we're just going to be in it, for better or for worse, yeah. that gives you a level of comfort and security and true freedom uh, that, that uh, will allow you to weather those storms. And, and you also don't need to pursue selflessness exactly. In a way, you're sort of pursuing the opposite. You're pursuing a sort of selfishness in that you are viewing your spouse as part of your flesh. A man and a woman leave their families. They come together in one flesh. I think of my wife, sweet little Elisa, truly as a part of my flesh. And so even when I do all sorts of very annoying behaviors, and Elisa yells at me and she says, Mike, do
3: the dishes, go
7: in there, clean up your clothing. Why are you doing you're working too late?
3: Why are you at backstage on that mic?
7: I I think to myself that this is good. I, I need to accept this. With saintly patience, this is very virtuous to do. And that last point that Jordan made, this is very important, that Catholic guilt is so good because in the good times you will be absolutely blissful in your marriage, but in the bad times, in the bad times, and this is true in all aspects of life, you know that suffering can be a sanctifying experience. And if you react to it in a way that is with patience and that is edifying and and that is not uh, merely complaining and debasing, that can be a wonderful thing. And and even through difficult moments, that will bring you even closer together until your wife kills you in the end. And anyway, you had a good run.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... Like Michael, if my marriage ends, it will be because my wife murders me, both because she is a doctor and can get away with it, and, <laughs> and also because the life insurance money is just extraordinary. <laughs> but, you know, the, to, to take, I think, something that hasn't been taken, it's hard to be the last person except for Jeremy, and who cares what Jeremy has to say? Um, it's, <laughs> uh, so one thing that, that I think people tend to fall prey to, is that men tend to think that the things that their wife wants are the things that they would want, and women tend to think that the things their husband wants are the things that they would want. And failing to recognize that men and women are wildly different and have very different priorities leads to some pretty bad things. I have so many stories that are like, I mean, the the purest example of this that I can think of uh, is uh, one time I was, uh, my wife came to me and she had some sort of problem, and I did what men do. I said, okay, so here's a bunch of solutions. Ooh. Men, right. Oh. Yeah, I see that, Candace, so that's correct.
10: <laughs> <laughs> Is it really a bad, idea? <laughs> a bad, bad men, idea?
0: Because men are solution-oriented, right? If they hear a problem, men like to fix things. They like machines, they like to fix things. And so my wife presented me with a problem, and I said the natural, normal, logical thing that men do. And I said, here's a solution, and she got mad. And <laughs> I realized at that point that what she didn't want was a solution. What she wanted was for me to hear her. Yes. <laughs> ah, to hear her. Yes, the comfort. <laughs> ah, the emotion. Even I, (laughs) even I. (laughs) And so at that point, we set up a rule in my home, and the rule goes like this. When my wife comes to me with a problem, I say to her, is this a solutions problem, or is this (laughs) a conversation where you want me to hear you? (laughs) And my wife has been kind enough, knowing my shortcomings, to actually abide by this rule and answer the question straight that she doesn't actually want the problem solved. One other example of this sort of disconnect, because I think uh, the, the truth is that I think that what, what women actually want to speak for women, as I'm so, I'm, I'm an expert. I, mean, I could be one. I mean, it just, it could be anything. Yeah. It, what women predominantly want is to be heard and protected by the man that they are with. They want to be heard, and they want to be understood, and they want to be protected by the man that they are with. And because that is the best characteristic about the husband and father. And what men want is respect, food, and sex. Those are the things that men want. It isn't that difficult. We're real simple. So all you ladies are like, man, man's a mystery. He's not a mystery. I promise you, you provide him all three of these things and he will be a happy camper. (laughs) My wife came to me at one point and she said to me, she's on the phone with... um, a person who shall remain nameless, a female friend of hers who shall remain nameless. And this, this woman, her, uh, her husband, she'd been working a lot, and her husband had been working a lot, and she was in the middle of a very difficult work project with a bunch of kids at home, and her husband would come home and he'd be taking care of the kids. And he was getting grumpier and grumpier about this, as men are apt to do. And she was talking with my wife on the phone, and, my wife, and she said what to my wife, what should, what should I do? And my wife said, you know, she buy him some flowers, get him a card, tell him how much what he's doing means to you. And I motioned desperately, you need to, like, it was on speakerphone, which it shouldn't have been. And uh, I motioned desperately to mute the phone. And she muted the phone. And I said, no, you need to bleep him. (laughs) And I said to my wife, you're you're thinking like a woman would think, right? Because if you want me to, if you want to feel appreciated, you don't want that. What you want me to do is buy you some flowers and write you a card and talk about how wonderful you are and and how grateful I am. And... She, my wife, being a woman of good sense and practicality, nodded firmly, took off the mute and said, go home and sleep with your husband. (laughs) (laughs) And it was good for the marriage, as it turned out. Can
10: I make a comment on all of this? I I, I would just like to make a comment observing all of this. (laughs) No, 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 it's not what you expect. (laughs) <laughs> this, this whole dialogue would be inconceivable at any left-wing place. <laughs> and the reason is, we're real. <laughs> they hate reality. None of this discussion, especially the last comment. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I could prove it. Uh, this will take just what, literally under a minute. About, about ten years ago, I wrote a, I, I write a column every week. So, twenty years of columns. One year, I wrote a two-part column on uh, on the, the subject of uh, if you're um, uh, about. Uh, oh yes, uh, if a wife is not in the mood, that's what it was a two-part column. And my, the whole thesis, which I put in such gentle phraseology. <laughs> go, go home and bleep him? If you're, yes. If, you are, if your husband is a good man, if you respect him, if he treats you beautifully, then don't only allow your mood to determine whether you sleep with him. That was the thesis of it. Of course there are times when obviously that will determine, but not always. Just as mood cannot determine almost anything good that we do, uh, I don't determine whether I go to work based on my mood. The Daily Coase uh, uh, Daily wrote, headline, you can see it, it's still up there, Dennis Prager advocates marital rape. <laughs> 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 yeah. they, they hate reality. <laughs>
11: So, so, one of the, one of the um, practices that my wife and I have that really helped us a tremendous amount more recently when we were both recovering from very serious illnesses is we had instituted a policy of regular dates, mm-hmm. and probably 25 years ago, maybe longer, and that was at her impetus. I was resistant to the idea to begin with, um, but not for long. Uh, and um, Yeah, and so like so to follow up on your comment, it's like Put in some bloody effort and get in the mood (laughs) Both of you right both of you. Yeah, yeah Because it's not when you're exhausted with kids when you're when you've worked all day, you know, and You're kind of up to here and you're tired. It's easy to drop your the intimate part of your marriage to number 11 on a list of 10 priorities. And then That's just not a good long-term strategy. And so when you're an adult with adult responsibilities you have to carve out the time and you have to make a willful effort and as Dennis just pointed out that's way too important to have it depend on something like unpredictable and arbitrary whim and on both on the part of both partners. Yeah. So could I
5: uh, the rules have totally broken down, so can I talk again? (laughs) 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 After listening, I just want to give one other, because after listening to all this, I feel like um, my answer should be more sexist, like the rest of (laughs) (laughs) you. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's there's one one other thing I think think is really important, and this is advice to men in particular in marriage, and that is to stop bitching, okay? Yeah. Now... The same advice could go to women, but there's no point. Like, no, why and- <laughs> <laughs> um, But I, I think... I th- you guys opened the floodgates, so I'm just... <laughs> I'm just jumping in. I think uh, we've, lost, we've lost the sense of stoicism in, in men completely in marriages. And so now, because we encourage men to, you know, be very open about your emotions, and, and what that ends up happening is that you just, like, dump all of this stuff onto your wife all the time, everything that you're worrying about, everything you're thinking about. And the idea that a man would just shoulder something in silence is, is uh, it's considered, you know, offensive. No, you have to be open about your feelings. One of my um, favorite stories in the Gulag Archipelago, a sentence that has never I before never been heard uttered. One of yeah. My favorite stories. <laughs> Little anecdote. <laughs> By the way... <laughs> This is a story that I told my brother the day before his wedding. I was his best friend. Um, so that's true. There's a, a man who's uh, at a Soviet labor camp, and he's sentenced to die. And he's... Why are you guys laughing? i trying to tell a serious story. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's sentenced to be, he's sentenced to be <coughs> shot, shot to death and, and, uh, but he wants to see his wife. There's no, I can't tell the story. It's, 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 I can't tell it. It's impossible. The point I'm trying to make is, uh, he's, he's sentenced to, to dine and, 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 but he wants to see his wife one last time. And so, uh, the prison guards tell him that, yeah, we, we can send your wife to come see you. But the deal is you can't tell her what's about to happen to you because if you tell her that then you know then maybe she ends up getting shot too um so he spends three days with his wife just walking around this prison camp and uh, never tells her what's about to happen to him he just spends time with her and shoulders this burden mm. entirely on his own and then as soon as she is sailing away on the ship uh, he's you know undressing to go before the firing line you compare that to today when a man comes home like in tears, what's wrong? I stubbed my toe. And, you know, and it's, it's just, uh, there's quite a contrast there, I think.
3: I, I, I agree that you need honesty in your marriage, absolutely. You need honesty in all of your relationships, including your relationship with yourself, which is where most of the real lies uh, happen in the world. But I think that, kind of to your point, Matt, I think that there's a difference between honesty as an as a general statement and honesty in the specifics. So, for example, I believe that the fantasy of marriage is part of what destroys so many marriages in in the modern age. I don't want to live in a fantasy relationship with my wife, I want to live in a very real relationship with my wife. And so I don't want my wife, for example, to think a bunch of fanciful things about the foundations of our marriage. I don't want her to think, I think you're the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, Mila Kunis exists, and my wife knows that Mila Kunis (laughs) exists. I don't believe my wife selected me on the basis that I'm the most beautiful man in the world. Uh, Clearly. (laughs) clearly. (laughs) In some ways, believing in those sort of fanciful notions actually diminishes the value of the choice that we make in selecting our spouse. Uh, And so I want my wife to know very, very truthfully what a man is distinct from what a woman is, what the burdens of a man are, very distinct from what the burdens of a woman are. I don't want her to live, uh, I don't want her to live in an illusion, and I don't want to live in an illusion, but I don't tell her every time that I think a waitress is hot. That's a very specific piece of information (laughs) that is my burden to carry. I don't want her, (laughs) I don't want her to think that I don't think waitresses are hot, right? I don't want her to think uh, that men are the same as women or or that I'm better than I am, but I also don't want to burden her with all the particulars. And I think that's kind of part of what you're, Part of what you're saying is that we do, we do have to carry part of this. I, I have a lot to say on the topic of marriage. You know, I, I've had the honor of officiating uh, two dozen or, or more weddings, some for people who are here, people who are very dear to me, uh, lifelong friends. I, I, I got to pastor a church for, for many, many years in Los Angeles. Uh, even uh, our, our friend Laurel, who's here today, I had the honor of marrying her uh, to her husband. And and so I've, I've had the opportunity to think a lot about if, if you're going to take on the responsibility of officiating a wedding, you have an obligation to, to imp, try to impart some pieces of wisdom to people before you do it. And a lot of it's very practical. Don't go tit for tat, don't keep score. You, know, when you, have, you have to give each other the right to criticize one another. You can't navigate 40, 50, 60 years of life with someone who has no opportunity to criticize you. Men and women are different. You're going to have different needs. Don't try to place your... Uh, uh, your um, reactions to something on them as though they mean what it would mean if you did the very same thing. I mean, these are very practical and I think very important, but there's a very spiritual component to it as well. And obviously the Bible has a great deal to say about it, but you, know, you, can, you can live in Ephesians for a long time talking about marriage, but there's, there's a different idea that I'd, I'd like to leave the conversation with, which is that at the end of the day, and this is less directly stated in the Bible, but indirectly many, many times stated in the Bible, you have no real power over any other human being. If you do, you don't, it's not a God-given power. You have no right to the power that you have over them. You certainly can't change anyone for the better through coercion. You can't make someone what you want them to be. And yet there is a paradox which says in any meaningful relationship, if you work on fulfilling your role, to the best of your ability and beyond, if you work on bettering yourself, if you work on putting into a relationship all that you can, it's, it's not a recipe that says if you do this, it will change them. If, in fact, if you pursue it on that basis, it almost certainly will not work. But the paradox is if you pursue it simply because it is the right thing to do, it has some mystical effect on the other. It's almost as though there's a God and He knows the heart of man and He knows the difference between things that are motivated out of the good and things that are motivated out of uh, only the selfish. And when you pursue being the best husband that you can be, it creates in your wife at least the opportunity for her to be the best wife that she can be. When you are the best wife that you can be, it it creates in your husband the opportunity to be the best husband that he can be. And yeah, some sex would be nice. (laughs) Here's a terrific question. And I actually am gonna go around the room because I think I know how it'll play out. Uh, who is universally accepted to be the best looking of all of you? I'll go first, And <laughs> 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 I dare any of you to say anything. Other- <laughs> okay. We have time for just a handful more questions. We'll we'll go around the room. I think this is working very well for us. I think we can just try cross-talking and see what happens uh, at this point. Obviously, a lot of people want to know politically what's happening in the country. What do we expect to happen during the midterms uh, and beyond? I don't want to dwell on politics very long because they're boring, and anything we say isn't what will happen because of chaos. And the world. The thing that you don't know about the world if you haven't read the Bible is that people are terrible and you can't predict anything. Uh, But generally speaking, what do we all think is on the horizon?
6: Definitely the collapse of Black Lives Matter narrative, I think, for sure. I've yeah, seen the black community. Yeah, from your community. lips. Yeah. The race narrative. There's a lot of narratives that seem to be collab- collapsing and falling apart, and I think time has been on the conservative side for sure. And, and bizarrely, I think that the COVID lockdowns ha- helped <coughs> in a bizarre way in terms of all of the arguments that we were making. Mm-hmm. I think people thought we were being hyperbolic, about the government, about the extreme governance, about they're coming after your children, and then it got real really quickly, right? (laughs) Um, So I've been extremely optimistic about the direction that the country is going into because of that, because I've been gaining followers where I don't expect them. I think people are realizing... Um, how little things, like when you're complaining about inflation at the supermarket, they're realizing, wait a second, I don't even know how to grow my food. Everyone knows I'm very into gardening right now. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to grow my food. I don't know how to, um, uh, you know, do, do things for my family and for myself. We've all, in a sense, been welfare recipients in my mind. Um, and because of the tragedy of the Biden administration, I think people are waking up and the tragedy of COVID policy all around the world globally there seems to be an awakening. And I I always like to leave people with that optimism because things can seem really dreary and can seem really gloomy. But even in terms of a Biden presidency, I say that God had his hand on that. We needed that to happen in order for there to be this proliferation of people waking up and saying, okay, wait, enough is enough. Things need to change.
3: I made the mistake of looking at my watch. I made the mistake of looking at my watch. I'm not going to ask you guys any more questions, but I am going to use my prerogative to ask one that didn't come from the audience, and I'm going to ask it, uh, Dr. Peterson, of you. Uh, We've lived through over the last few years in this country and and in your home country as well, a a very open hostility from our governments against us Uh, with the COVID lockdowns, with so many of the policies that were sort of justified. I don't like it when people say, oh, I work from home because of COVID. Well, it's not because of COVID that you work from home. It's because of uh, bureaucrats and politicians who determined that their reaction to, po- to COVID would be these very various things. Uh, and so I think a lot of Americans are seeing the world in a, in a different way than they ever have. But you uniquely of anyone on this stage have had your government come against you personally, not in the broad sense that we've all been enduring it, but you, you've really been targeted, uh, it seems to me, by the Canadian government in a way uh, that's very specific and very particular, and yet you continue to live a lot of your life uh, in Toronto. I'm sure that you're, uh, you, know, you, have, you have deep relationships in Toronto. How, do you, how does one make the decision to stay and fight versus, I mean, you can go anywhere in the world that you wanna go, you're well-traveled, you're, uh, you're affluent, you've been successful. How do you make the decision to stay uh, and stand against those forces when they've, when they've turned their guns directly on you?
11: Well, I think,
3: in some ways,
11: I haven't made the decision to stay. So for example, I'm here right now. <laughs> well, and I was, just, I was just in Europe for a month, mostly in Eastern Europe. That went great. Um, I think Dennis is right when he says that the eastern Europeans might save the western Europeans. They've had they had their fair share of <laughs> surfite of the ideas that are tearing us apart under the communists and so they haven't exactly forgotten that yet. Yeah. And so I'm in Canada a reasonable amount but I'm traveling all over the world and That's part of the battle against what's happening in Canada because weirdly enough what's happening in Canada is happening all over the Western world I mean, you know that things have got extremely strange when Canadian politics is now interesting (laughs) (laughs) That's a very disturbing trend because our country had a reputation for being utterly predictable and dull which is the most wonderful political reputation you can possibly have right it's like your politicians are just faceless bureaucrats it's just, yes yes <laughs> thank god that's exactly what we want right that kind of dull nor- normality that conservatives particularly appreciate say um, i'm doing what i can to let's say oppose hmm. the ideas okay. And not the people exactly, but the ideas that are shredding us. And I can do that partly by staying in Canada, where I still have family and friends, but also by being here and by the touring that I'm doing and by working as much as I can internationally. And so that seems to be an optimal balance, and I don't really have to decide in that sense, right? I mean, I'm moving a lot of money out of Canada because they freeze bank accounts in Canada, and I noticed, and I have bank accounts. And so, um, and I also, I also saw when I was touring through Europe, um, especially in the last month, the Canadian government has no idea what freezing bank accounts did to Canada's reputation. It was a devastating move, and the consequences of that are going to unfold over Oh god, only knows how long. 20 years maybe. It was a, ca- a catastrophic move strategically. So, I'm moving as much money as I can out of Canada as fast as I possibly can. So, but I, but my residency is still there and I'm working avidly with conservatives in Canada to rid our country of the plague that its governance currently represents so and and i should also i should also point out there is not a chance in the world that trudeau is going to last more than three more years
3: (laughs) dr peterson thank you for being with us tonight dennis thank you so much for making the trip thank you both for joining us at daily wire plus Thank you to all the Daily Wire employees who are here tonight who helped make tonight's wonderful event happen. Thank you to some of our advertisers who chose to join us tonight. Thank you to the Daily Wire subscribers who make all of this possible. Here's to seven more great years. Good night, everybody.